And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when just about anything can be discussed or sometimes even happen. Um, This morning, we have a remarkable show for you. From the Land of Enchantment here in the desert north of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Uh, we're going to be talking about interplanetary and interstellar communication. And we're going to cover the waterfront, mixing our metaphors, Natalie. Before we do that, however, I do want to kind of uh, hit a couple of news items here at the top. Again, if you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. And that will take you to our URL. At the top, you will see a banner which says, Calling Occupants of Interstellar Craft. And our guests this morning, David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett, click on that. Um, That will take you down to the guest page for our guests this morning, David and uh, Jimmy. And I'll introduce them momentarily, but if you click on the uh, fast links right below the banner where it says fast links to Richard. That takes you to a section of the radio with pictures page where we have our news items. Item number one, we're leading of course tonight as we've done for many weeks now, ever since September with the latest on La Palma, the volcano that's erupting for the first time in over uh, 30 plus years. Um, the reason La Palma is important is because in 1949, there was a major quake and eruption and about half the island split. And so one half is resting on the other half. And given a sufficient seismic disturbance, the modeling says that one half could slide into the Atlantic Ocean, in which case it would be a bad hair day for everyone all around. There is discussion of mega tsunamis, waves racing across the North Atlantic Basin at six, 700 miles an hour, tidal waves, tsunamis coming ashore that could reach uh, over 100 feet tall, going inland for maybe 20, 30 miles. Needless to say, that would cause havoc and an extraordinary catastrophe for everyone around the North Atlantic Basin. Now, the times will differ if this extraordinarily low probability event were to occur, you wouldn't have much warning in the north coast of Africa or in Europe. You'd have much more for the eastern seaboard of the United States. But the waves could reach as far as the Gulf of Mexico, the shores there going around the uh, uh, tip of Florida. And they could reach the islands in the Caribbean and even the northern coast of South America. So that would be a very bad event. So what you want to do, if you have a smartphone, and everybody does these days, you want to put the um, La Palma uh, link that I have posted on the uh, guest page tonight on your smartphone. So if there's a major seismic event, it will ring. It will alert you, and you uh, have packed a go bag if you're along the coast, and you can be ready to leave in minutes, and you go inland more than 20, 30, 40 miles, or you go up in altitude. If you're near a coast with mountains, you want to go up. You know, remember that scene from Deep Impact where the kids are riding on the uh, 
motorcycle and they went up and up and up and up. Now that, uh, you know, um, demonstration was for an asteroid striking just off the East Coast with no warning. But in this case, if you're along the East Coast of the United States, you will have hours and hours of warning so you can uh, get out of Dodge. Again, this is a low, low probability event. But in this era of being on a wired planet, it is better to be safe than sorry. And I've alerted my family who are living along the East Coast, and they are, uh, they are prepared. Item number two. Item number two is important because it feeds into the larger conversation we're going to be having this evening as to who is out there, who is wanting to talk to us, and is everybody <clears throat> friendly? Uh, as you know, for a couple of years now, I have maintained that COVID-19 is, in fact, uh, an, an alert that we are at war. This is biowarfare coming from upstairs, not from China. China was the first victims because um, they did something that displeased the folks upstairs, and uh, they've taken it out on China, and China being a very secretive and face-saving society – obviously is not going to admit this, so they uh, kind of tried to hide what was going on, and the result was a catastrophic world pandemic, which is still raging. Now, we've had several variants, uh, three now that are on record. There was Alpha, there was Delta, which is very much more contagious, and I obviously think that there is no... Um, Shall we say coincidence in the naming of the Delta variant? Because if you look, as we did years ago, at the spike proteins on the coronavirus known as COVID-19, you'll notice that they are little tetrahedrons. Proteins arranged geometrically as little tetrahedrons. I need not tell this audience what the significance of tetrahedrons are in the larger scheme of things. So, isn't it interesting that a virus which is sweeping the world and is the worst pandemic in over 100 years would have this specific geometric redundant shape? And then the World Health Organization, this kind of mysterious global medical establishment, which has all kinds of questions swirling around it, out of the blue, they decide to call the next variant of this covid 19 tetrahedral shaped spike protein virus, a delta variant. Well, of course, a delta is an equilateral triangle in two dimensions, which is a tetrahedron in three. You see why I'm kind of suspicious about a lot of this? Anyway, now we've got a new variant, which apparently originated uh, in South Africa and is incredibly virulent. Uh, I've seen number, some numbers. Uh, like three times more contagious than the Delta variant. And they've decided to call this one, again, this is the WHO, the World Health Organization. They've decided to call this Omicron, which is the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet. Now, Omicron is interesting because as soon as the uh, World Health Organization posted this nomenclature, Twitter erupted in a whole bunch of incredibly intriguing speculation connecting the Omicron variant with the Decepticons 
in the Transformers series a la the comics, the cartoons, and the major motion pictures. And of course, the Decepticons are bad guys. They're bad AIs. They're bad robots. They're the enemies of the uh, uh, good guys, the good guy robots in the Transformers series, and also uh, of the human species. Well, is this all just coincidence? Again, my model for two years has been that COVID-19 is biowarfare by someone upstairs that does not like us and has been throwing us curveballs because it's much easier to defeat an alien species if you do it biologically than if you use ray guns and spaceships and try to invade cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, everyone has focused in the COVID-19 disaster on the number of people who die. I have been focused on the number of people who live. In fact, about 30% of everyone who gets COVID-19 has what's called long COVID, where symptoms go on for weeks and months, and in some cases, for the duration from the beginning of the pandemic. And in a war, the name of the game is to debilitate your enemy by forcing them to take care of the wounded, the casualties, those who are injured, uh, as opposed to killing uh, the enemy outright, because that saps resources that could be used in the confrontation, in the fight, to take care of people on the home front. Is this, in fact, the strategy? The fact that something like 30%, I've seen numbers varying from 20 up to maybe 50, have this long COVID and all of these support groups now and all the medical institutions which are trying to run lengthy studies to find out how and why and why there's persistence of symptoms. In other words, if you debilitate 30% of everyone who gets COVID-19, if you create a campaign which encourages as many people as possible to get COVID-19 or to be exposed to it, how do you do that? Well, you spread vicious lies and rumors that the vaccine is really a plot. It will kill you or change your DNA. It's chipped. It'll put some kind of nano bug in your system. It will somehow allow them, whoever them are, to eavesdrop. You drop in names like Bill Gates and, you know, uh, Anthony Fauci. And you mix well and you've got an incredible offensive propaganda campaign. Remember, the first casualty in any war is truth. And so no one knows which way is up. You have a huge portion of the population in the United States. It's, uh, I think, about 30% now who are determined to remain unvaccinated, which means they're vulnerable to the, uh, to, to the virus. And 30% of those people that come down with it will develop long covid a certain percentage will horribly die, adding to the almost 800,000 people who have died in the United States so far, not counting the millions around the world. In other words, are we being set up in an interplanetary or interstellar or maybe even interdimensional war? And that, of course, delves deeply into who are we really, 
What are we doing on this planet? What are ruins doing all over the solar system? Why has NASA been keeping all those images and analyses and data secret? And why did the WHO decide to name the latest variant Omicron, which of course is one of the bad guys in the Transformers series, which is spearheaded by a director, Michael Bay, who seems to know an awful lot about interplanetary conflagrations. Is this all coincidence? Well, many, many decades ago, a famous president, FDR, said in politics, there is no such thing as coincidence. Give you an example. About two weeks ago, if you go to item number three in my section of Radio with Pictures, the Russians did something bizarre. They apparently uh, shot down with a surface-to-air missile one of their own um, obsolete satellites, a spy satellite that they apparently had chosen uh, for target practice to demonstrate that they, in fact, can shoot down satellites. problem with this scenario is the Russians are not dummies. The Chinese did something very similar to a weather satellite of theirs some years before, and it caused a huge international havoc because when you fragment a spacecraft in low Earth orbit, the pieces fly into all kinds of different orbits, creating a screen of extraordinarily fast-moving projectiles, shrapnel, which can penetrate a satellite at something like 17,500 miles an hour if you're in the wrong orbit, disabling it, exploding it, taking it out, creating more fragments. In other words, kind of like the uh, uh, you know ping-pong balls on a set of, of, of uh, loaded mousetraps in a sealed room, a chain reaction. I have met, I've said, and I firmly believe tonight, even more so, that the Russians did not shoot down their own spacecraft. Because for one thing, it required the movement, literally the uh, firing of, of uh, thrusters on the International Space Station and moving it out of the way of some of the debris which reached as high as the orbit of the space station, which is about 260 miles above the Earth. And there are Russians aboard the space station. So what idiot, or was it Putin, who authorized shooting down, or exploding actually, because the pieces don't go down, uh, destroying, exploding, detonating, fragmenting one of their own spacecraft when in fact three cosmonauts aboard the space station would be in immediate jeopardy as they were and will be for months and months and months to come as fragments change orbits, as they collide, as a whole tier of orbits becomes less safe due to the nature of celestial mechanics. Or the Russians didn't do something so incredibly dumb and stupid and very undiplomatic. Is it possible they are covering, like all governments are covering during the pandemic, for the fact that we secretly are at war? And they all don't want us to know because that would open the big secret that we are not alone and the even deeper secret, which is there are folks out there that do not have the best of intentions toward life on planet Earth. And that is such a can of worms that no one wants to go there 
So the Russians are taking the short-term political hit in order to defer, to delay the revelation that we are in some kind of interplanetary or interstellar war. In fact, it may not even be our war. We may be kind of like Vietnam was the casualty of the confrontation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Suppose we're in some backwater in this spiral arm. And suppose the war has been ebbing and flowing across this part of the galaxy for thousands or maybe even millions of years. And there are some long periods of time when nothing is occurring. And then there are times when the war flows back across this tiny solar system in the big perspective of the galaxy itself. That could be one scenario. I happen to think it's a little more directed than that, but uh, we can get into that as we have a conversation with our guests of the morning. The, the fact of the matter is that there are too many coincidences going on for um, comfort or security or putting your head in the sand and pretending nothing bad is going on. Item number four. Again, coincidentally, this week, a few days ago, NASA launched a mission designed to crash a spacecraft at something like 15,000 miles an hour, that's about four miles per second, into a double asteroid in about 10 months, um, designed to see if, in fact, we on Earth, if we ever detect through early warning, through optical telescope or radar technology, an asteroid on a collision course with the Earth, similar to that which uh, took out the dinosaurs, if we, in our current infant state of space technology, i.e. still limited to rockets, if in fact we have the wherewithal to mount a defense, to move the asteroid out of the way and thereby save the Earth. Well, this is not going to do exactly that because the target has been chosen very specifically. Um, there's a large asteroid, several thousand feet across, and there's a smaller asteroid, which is a few hundred feet across, and they're orbiting each other. And the idea is for the DART mission, which stands for uh, um, Double Asteroid Redirection Test. If the DART mission crashes into the smaller asteroid, the idea is it will disturb the orbit of the smaller object orbiting the bigger one. Earth scientists with telescopes and long-term tracking will be able to monitor these orbit changes and thereby know how effective the so-called kinetic kill or kinetic redirection method of asteroid orbit changes really is. Now, you know that I, for some time, have said that by some bizarre occurrence, again, another coincidence, most if not all of the comets and asteroids that NASA has visited over the past several decades appear in fact to be ancient, eroded, ancient spacecraft, not rocks. Is it possible that the little asteroid going around the bigger asteroid in the Didymo system, that's the name of the big asteroid, is in fact not two asteroids together orbiting through space around the sun, but in fact a major object, a real asteroid, 
being orbited by a large ancient space habitat, in which case, what will happen during the impact of our dark spacecraft with the smaller object, i.e. not a chunk of rock at all, but in fact an ancient, honeycombed, very eroded spacecraft of millions of years of age. That is going to be very interesting, and it will all play out on national television in about 10 months. But it's in this time frame where we've got the bizarreness of the pandemic, the fingerprints that, in fact, it's not from here, it's from someone out there. Then we have the Russian event, which, again, is highly anomalous. Why would the Russians try to create more debris in low Earth orbit? Or is it, in fact, another escalation of the invisible interplanetary war where someone is basically threatening to close off all access of occupants of Earth to low Earth orbit and beyond? Anybody using rockets, anybody using that primitive technology, including the civilians like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who are aiming to create civilian efforts, non-governmental efforts to go to the moon, to Mars, and beyond. If you don't have anti-gravity, if you don't have control of a spacecraft stuff that you can avoid impact with one of these fragments from deteriorating smashed satellites, then basically we are bound to Earth. This would create the literal concept of a prison planet Earth. Is this another warning from someone upstairs that, in fact, A, we're not alone, B, at least some of them are bad guys, and C, they want us to remain here, and they are willing to up the stakes, up the ante, to make sure that we do, again, under the rubric that only the highest levels of governments know what's really going on, and everybody else on the planet is kept in wondrous ignorance and the blissful um, inception of the idea that, in fact, we are alone, and there's nobody out there, and all of this is just happening by chance. Well, there's another data point. If you look at item number five, apparently when the DART mission left at dawn a couple of days ago, because of the role of Bruce Willis in one of those amazing... Uh, uh, Michael Bay films about going and uh, sending a human expedition to literally land on an asteroid and drill into it and bury an atomic device to blow it to kingdom come before it can destroy the Earth. Well, Bruce Willis was invited formally by NASA to watch the launching of the NASA asteroid smashing mission. And for some bizarre reason, Bruce Willis turned down the NASA invitation. That's item number five. Now, I've seen a lot of rocket launches. I don't care how jaded you are, how much of the world you've seen, how much champagne you've drunk, or how many starlets you've dated, to turn down a freebie invitation to be only a couple of miles from the night launch of an amazing mission, which kind of has the imprimatur of one of your starring roles in Hollywood just does not make sense. 
So is Bruce Willis aware that there are larger permutations to the invitation that in fact the launching of the DART mission is not just a coincidence in this time frame? Uh, I guess we'll have to wait till we we uh, hear from Bruce Willis. Item number six. While all this is going on, a major paper was published by an astrobiologist claiming that humans may not just be on this planet, but could be available and living all over the universe in galaxies far, far away. And he invoked something called convergent evolution to demonstrate this with some equations, some hand-waving, and a lot of backing and filling. Now, the classic biological model, ever since uh, uh, Carl Sagan started talking about life beyond the Earth, has been uh, basically based on a biologist at Harvard named George Gaylord Simpson, who said ultimately hundreds of times that if we were to recreate the history of Earth, we would never recreate the history of human beings. That intelligence on Earth would not look like us, would certainly not talk like us, would not be a biped like us, that it could have any shape or form. I mean, look at how bright octopuses are, et cetera, et cetera. This scientist is now saying that all of that is basically junk. That in fact, in a big galaxy, in a big universe, human bipedal forms, the humanoid shape and size and function would be replicated countless times. Now, as you know, I've said many times on this show that real aliens out there, meaning folks that do not share our DNA, are probably quite rare. That all those folks that have been interacting throughout history with human beings on Earth from interplanetary or interstellar sources are most likely members of a vast extended human family that doesn't just look like us, but they share our DNA because we're all cousins under the skin. We're dealing not with aliens, but with family ET. And into this rather remarkable position that I've held for many, many, many years, suddenly you have mainstream science saying, oh, humans may be present all over the universe. Well, isn't that special? In other words, is this a way of quietly, obliquely kind of sneaking up on the idea that A, we're not alone, and B, it's family, which of course raises the question, the most serious fights, at least on Earth, among us Earth humans, occur in families. Are we looking at a family fight writ large? Are we looking at interstellar um, opponents and bickering kin and kith? And do some of them happen to live around the brilliant A-star Sirius? Again, to be discussed at great length in our future conversation. Um, I thought to close this segment that I would kind of go to this music because it was written decades ago. It was made very famous by uh, uh, the Carpenters. And it seems to, shall we say, approach the subject 
from the naive position of the 1970s, presaging our real awareness and the truth in the 21st century of planet Earth. We are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. In your mind, you have capacities, you know, to telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think. Upon the recitation we're about to say Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft from the beginning, uh, if you look back to English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Yeah. <laughs> and most people fail to to realize the uh, the strictness for and I know for example um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone and if you missed a, a dotting an eye you the, the guy could have the charge thrown out so what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress and then the queen, king, I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it 
basically was a uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada, and I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved in and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. November 27th, 2021. Welcome welcome back to the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are really interesting and absolutely right on point to the conversation that I've uh, tried to give some background to at the top of the show here. So let me switch screens and I will tell you something very interesting. My first guest uh, of the two that we're going to be talking to this morning is David Sarita. David's been on the show uh, at least once before. He was born in Edmonton, Alberta, August 21, 1961, into a family of five boys being the second eldest. His father, Dr. Lynn Sarita, Ph.D., was an educational psychologist at UC Berkeley and uh, was dedicated to his children's spiritual growth as well as intellectual maturity. His influence on David is one of the greatest driving forces behind everything that David now does. David's mother, Linda Trafford, was a carpenter, an artist, a family lawyer in California, and that was not planned. That was a true hyperdimensional coincidence. A carpenter, eh, David? Okay. Um, David decided at a certain age of his education to self-design his learning and consequently has studied world religions, meditation, philosophy, 
science, uh, physics, photography, screenwriting, art, film, music, consciousness, UFOs, crop circles, history, sacred sites, transpersonal psychology, yoga, and much, much more. And so without further ado, David, come on down. Welcome back. Well, that's, you know, that song you played really goes deep in me. When I hear Karen Carpenter, it's, she is just a gem. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, Richard, tonight. And, um, you know, I've been hearing you and Art Bell in the early days, and then me somehow getting on that show was, was really my dad's influence. You know, he was, he was really, you know, jabbing my ribs to get in on, on that show, and, and I used to listen to you falling asleep. <laughs> hey, sorry to interrupt, but can you get a little closer to your mic? We're getting an echo. Sure. Can you hear me better there? Much better, much better, yeah. Okay, I wanted to start with a point because you brought up COVID, and there are two amazing astronomical events that occurred right in the coincidence. And I, when I say coincidence, I don't mean negative coincidence. I mean mysterious. The dimming of Beetlejuice was between 2019 and 2020, and it, it comes right in that moment where this virus, which I believe is man-made, that's, that's my personal belief. Well, when you say man-made, are we talking intelligent-made as opposed to human on Earth? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, other, I mean, I, when I worked, I worked for a physicist named Bogdan Castle Maglich, who was an MIT PhD on both nuclear fusion and contraband detection, including um, um, viruses, detecting viruses and, and viruses that are made as weapons. So I had very high level access in the military because I did all the military communications for our contraband detection technology using fast neutrons. We, we could detect anything. And in fact, we even proposed to the U.S. Army Fort Belvoir Division that we could set up detectors in all American cities. And if a, if a pathogen or a virus or a bioweapon was detected, an alarm would go off and we could isolate the virus. And they said, well, that'll never happen. So we don't really need to do that. But it's interesting that you, you know, our technology could do that. But the point is, looking, there's two major stellar events. The dimming of Betelgeuse coming at the end of 2019 into 2020 is in perfect concert to the arrival of this supposed virus. Now, a second, and this one is quite stunning, this is a radio signal from Proxima Centauri called the BLC-1, and it was... Oh, the, the one they're now trying to explain away is a microwave oven or some terrestrial. Right. They, they tried to explain it away, but it took them forever to do it. And, that, and I'll tell you the reason, I'll tell you the reason they wrote it off is because here, I'll, I'll explain it to you. So it, the signal comes in April, May of 2019, which is again, is just before some of the earliest cases of COVID, which, which predate the December, the December date. Right. So, you know, coming into January of 2020. So here's what happened. This signal is the frequency of the signal right here is, um, this is really mind-blowing. It is 982.002 megahertz. Now, a frequency and a wavelength are the same thing. An electromagnetic frequency. Well, they're the inverse of each other. 
they're the inverse of each other, but they're actually the same thing. So you take the speed of light in inches divided by the – and, of course, you and I discussed the speed of light has a slight, slight variance. It's never the same. But you take the speed of light with its variance divided by the frequency, and you've got to use the speed of light in inches. You have to have your resolution really good. And divided by this particular frequency of the BLC1, it comes to 12 modern inches perfectly. Now, I was the first person to notice that, and I started posting it. And after I posted it is when they you came You mean up one with, English foot? One English foot. Not a Greek foot, not a Roman foot, mm -hmm. not a perfect, not using – a, in fact, I'd really like to resolve this to the to the primitive inch because it's 0.00106 different than the British inch because it's 12 inches. And when I saw that, I went, that's impossible. <laughs> A signal coming from Proxima Centauri, 4.2, 4.3 light years from Earth, so it takes that long for a radio wave to get here, with a, a measurement of a wavelength that is would only mean something to humans. In, in fact... You know, modern humans because or it should, or or and again, it, it, it this was they canceled it and tried to cut. They came out with this whacked out theory after I was publicizing that. Did anybody notice that the wavelength is twelve inches, and and that meant it was either intended for us, and of course, the BLC one arrives just on cue before only months before this this you wait know, a minute this, you're using an acronym blc what does that stand for well that's that's the name of this signal so if you go on wikipedia or just google capital blc and the number one and you'll see the story on wikipedia but what what does it stand for oh oh i actually don't know it's the all i know is the signal came from proxima centauri on in April and May of 2019, this is when they first detected it. They did not write this off for years. It, it took the only recently in the press did they try to write it off as some possible Earth-based. I mean, how would they? How would it take? Do them we years do we know what radio uh, astronomical facility uh, observatory actually detected yeah, this? Parks Radio Telescope. Which is the one in Australia, the big one. There you go. I think yeah. it's 210-foot dish, I think. Yeah. Parks Observatory that detected the BLC-1. And why so is it again, called BLC? Why, Richard? I, I keep going why back. Why, well, hang on, hang on. Why do they name it BLC? Um, breakthrough Listen Candidate 1. There you go. Oh, so this was a civilian effort the Breakthrough Listening Project right. using borrowed facilities. They actually they rent them. And they turn the antenna in the direction of Proxima Centauri, which is part of the three-star system, Alpha Centauri A and B, which is the closest star system to Earth, about 4.3 right. light years away. Mm -hmm. um, the two bigger stars are like, like the sun. One is slightly warmer. One is slightly cooler than the sun. The third one, Proxima, is a tiny red dwarf, which is located some distance away, but they're a system. They all go around each other. Now, when you say this signal came from Proxima Centauri, did it come from that star system, or did it come from the direction 
of Proxima, do we have the resolution to know which was which? Because if it just came from the direction, it could have come from much farther beyond and only have been a, quote, coincidence that Proxima was in the line of sight. See, here's what it says. The, the apparent shift in its frequency consistent with the Doppler effect was suggested be, to be inconsistent with what would be caused by the movement of Proxima B, a planet of Proxima Centauri. So they were trying to rule out what could cause it. But in the article, they never state that it's a 12-inch wavelength. They just state the frequency. It's very simple to do the math because the speed of light divided by the frequency is the wavelength, and the speed of light divided by the frequency is... is so this goes back to my opening thesis, which is that we're interacting not with strangers or aliens, but with family. Yeah, this is family. And, and there is a common language, a common measurement, a common set of constants, and the foot we know is not some arbitrary, you know, from King Henry the eighth elbow to his wrist, that kind of thing. It's right. part of a fundamental, very ancient, incredibly sophisticated uh, geodetic system on this planet, which has clues all throughout the math and the measurements to hyperdimensional physics and the torsion field itself. In other words, this is not an accident. This is kind of like uh, McLuhan, the medium, yeah, and in the this case, the wavelength, is part of the deep, deep message. If you get a ruler and you measure your, your index finger to the last joint, most of us are about one inch. Right? So, so the inch and then the cubit, and hit, let's go even further back to Oumuamua, okay? So you go to well, wait, wait, wait. Before we get that, I, I, I want to bring Jimmy on. I didn't mean to exclude okay. him from the conversation <laughs> um, because he's a key part of this. He's, he's really... Oh, yeah. Uh, co-leader in this intriguing civilian effort to communicate interplanetarily or extraterrestrial or interstellar-wise. Jimmy Blanchett is an accomplished scientist and an executive leader in major corporations for over 25 years' experience in quality control, operations, research, and engineering. He is a master black belt in Lean and Six Sigma with numerous accomplishments in operational excellence, he is also a licensed amateur radio operator. He's been a ham since childhood, having a deep passion for building antenna arrays and exploring challenging modes of communication and frequencies. And in 2013, Jimmy became interested in moon bounce communications, an exotic and very challenging space communication technique which consists of bouncing powerful radio beams off the surface of the moon to establish two-way communications here on Earth. The first such uh, experiment was the U.S. Army back in 1946 out of Monmouth, the U.S. Army Signal Corps, uh, in a project called Project Diana. In 2016, Jimmy completed the development of a unique homemade triangular array rotatable polarity antenna system for moon bounce communications. As a result, he has published two scientific papers about his engineering creation. The antenna system is made to cover the page of a specialized magazine for amateur radio on VHF, UHF, and microwaves. 
2017, in April, Jimmy's antenna system was repurposed to make reliable contact with non-human intelligence via high-power transmissions throughout the solar system and into deep space. So, Jimmy Blanchett, come on down. Good morning, Richard. Hello, David. Uh, hi, everyone. So it's such a pleasure being on your show, uh, Richard. I've uh, listened to uh, to you and Arbel many, many years ago, and uh, you know, hearing your voice reminds me that. So it's such a pleasure being <laughs> on your show. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> okay, David. I'm sorry I interrupted, but I wanted to bring in Jimmy because if you have anything to add to what we've said so far, you can do it now, or we'll let uh, David finish his explanation and then we'll move into other areas. Well. I just want to say first that the way Jimmy and I met is magical because I was, I had several approaches to interstellar or interstellar planetary communication techniques. And of course I was actually appointed director of the Tesla foundation by Bogdan Castle Maglich, who was from Yugoslavia and got his PhD um, at um, MIT and was a professor at Rutgers. So I was very close to Maglitch and Seaborg and Murray Gelman and all these legendary physicists. In fact, Gelman lived in, in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. I got to meet him there a few times. But nevertheless, it's magic how the universe works because here's these two distant guys, Jimmy Blanchett and myself, who unbeknownst to each other, have the same goal of, of, of reaching towards a new way, a different way of approaching interstellar planetary communication and inter-ET communication. And, and you know, like you, Richard, I, I don't just accept the classical dynamics of, you know, I mean, here's one of the greatest problems within all of UFOlogy. If these craft are coming into our airspace, and actually, the Roswell incident begins in north, uh, northern Idaho, which is right where I am. I'm just north of northern Idaho in, in this great mountain range. This is where the United Airlines pilots saw it. And I've seen, we've seen a lot of UFOs here. But the point is, we should be receiving or intercepting a communication signal of some kind, of some kind that may or may not be electromagnetic, or that can possibly interface with magnetic systems and or electromagnetic systems using RF or radio frequencies. So when I was looking at the BLC-1, and I, and I thought it was a perfect foot, I said, this cannot be a negative coincidence. This is a positive coincidence. And when I saw the, the dimming of Betelgeuse was right on cue to the coronavirus, the birth of the of the, the pandemic of this very... Yeah, but wait, 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 David, David, you have to un- explain that the, the Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse dimming is coincident in time to the outbreak, the known outbreak of COVID-19, but there's no real physical connection. It's just one of we those... We don't know, because... Well, because, but there's no provable connection at the moment, right? Well, not necessarily, because it could be a dimming or an eclipsing of a very large let's say, craft, because they don't really know what caused it to dim. They have theories. And believe me, I work for, you know, nuclear physicists, PhD physicists, and I've seen scientists argue over theories, just just like Avi Loeb, you know, who we both admire right now. I mean, he, he gets bombarded by opposing theories to his theories. So the mm. nature of science 
is argumentation. I just, David, I, I just want to keep this as rigorous as possible. There are literally thousands of variable stars, including one called Myra. And Myra is actually, remember the famous Star Trek episode where the Enterprise goes to uh, a planet orbiting the, the supergiant star Myra, which is Myra the Wonderful? Its Greek name in the star catalogs is Omicron Seti. So if we're looking at this Omicron variant now, is it connected via someone's very whacked out Emily Dickinson modality of thinking, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant? Is it connected to that episode of Star Trek? Again, you can reach and reach and reach and you lose people because they do not see the connections. So I try to stay with metonymic connections, which can be proven. Your mm-hmm. math connecting the average speed of light currently measured with the wavelength of the Proxima signal to the terrestrial imperial foot, that's science. Everything yeah. else at the moment is speculation. Let's stay in the realm of yeah, things no, I appreciate, we can prove. I, I love where your, mind, where your mind goes, Richard. But th- what I'm saying is this is how Jimmy and I kind of magnetized together. And then when I met Jimmy... Well, how did you meet? How did you physically meet? Because you well, only, we're only the, working together, what, nine, nine or ten months? Nine or ten months. But the way we met is he heard me on a program. Ah, okay. He said, I got to get a hold of this guy and tell him what I'm doing. And when I saw what Jimmy was doing... I was so blown away. I was so blown away because he was using a particular frequency of 144.1 megahertz on handheld radios. And a phenomenon was occurring on the radio that was was not producing a radio frequency. There was no radio frequency energy in the radio when these radios were chirping like birds in response to a language, a tonal language that Jimmy would send out. In fact, it's best to let Jimmy come in. and. I was going to say, Jimmy, how did you get into interstellar communications by means of radio? Okay. Uh, There's a little bit of story about it. I'll try to be succinct. Uh, We have three hours. You know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. well, you know, I, as uh, you mentioned a bit earlier, I became interested first in, in moon bounce communication in 2013 and got, you know, um, I started building my antenna system uh, to make that happen. It's a very challenging mode of communication, very exotic, and requires a lot of expensive equipment. And what kind of technology obviously. are you using for all the hams out well, there? Okay, well, for it's typically... Uh, for this kind of communication, you need a beam antennas, Yagi beams antenna, depending on the frequency that uh, you know the, you're transmitting on. So it's not a big a VHF, VHF. It's basically a rod with a spiral around it. It's uh, well, it, it depending on the frequency, uh, like on 432 megahertz, for instance, or 1.296 uh, gigahertz. Uh, typically, people will use dish, right? Because the dish is very 
uh, convenient and makes more sense for high frequencies, very high mm-hmm. frequencies, ultra high frequencies. When you get in the lower frequencies, you know, and that four, 144 megahertz, uh, the two meter band, as we call it in the amateur radio, um, is really typically more with Yagi antennas, which is a long, you know, long rod, as you mentioned, but there are elements. There are many elements along that rod, which focuses the beam, just like a laser beam, just like a dish does in a sense. It's done in a different, but a different fashion with the Yagi beam. So all that is really to focus. It's just like using a laser pointer. You know, for those who use a laser pointer, like a little laser, right? All that energy is focused on a small, you know, concentrated, like a small laser beam, if you will. So it's a bit the same principle. It's to focus and, and increase the gain of the antenna. So what it does, the antenna itself, um, it, essentially with this focus, will focus the electromagnetic radio wave in a very specific direction. So this way with um, a simple antenna like that, uh, which can be quite large, by the way, because mine was as big as my house, uh, but, you know, with an antenna like that, and you, you can feed it, you know, typically with, you know, one kilowatt or 1.5 kilowatt. Well, if you, your antenna system has a magnification or an amplification factor, if you will, of a thousand, well, your 1.5 kilowatts will, will turn into a 1.5 million watts of effective isotropic radiated power. But so you is, have to be you have to be in the beam to uh, detect that, right? Yes, it, it goes in a very specific direction, and that's why, uh, you know, when you know, if we do moon bounce, when I do moon bounce communication, for instance, I really have to beam the antenna towards the moon very specifically, and then follow the moon, and it's, it's you know, as it's moving in the sky. So totally. So this really is a kind of a replication of Project Diana, where the Army Signal Corps tried to bounce coherent modulated signals off the moon with a very large antenna at Fort Monmouth so that they could get communication bounced off the moon and received some other place on Earth long before satellites. I mean, this was 1946. Exactly, exactly. That allowed at the time communication. There was obviously no internet or nothing, you know, satellites. So, so and we're, 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 we're coming up to a break at the top of the hour, but I just want to point out to people that from 46 to now, the technology has so developed and the prices have so fallen, quote, amateur citizen scientists can literally send a signal from Earth to the moon bounce it off the moon and in the reflected beam pick it up anywhere on the planet with coherent communications amazing okay what guys hold it there we're at the top of the hour my guests this morning are david sarita and jimmy blanchett and we're talking about interstellar communication which is kind of what this is talking about you're on the other side of midnight My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And transmit thought energy far beyond the north. You close your eyes, you concentrate, you get out of the way. To send a message, we need to lay out our contact day. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hovland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night on the other side of midnight. Uh, You know, that song is so haunting because, guys, I remember when I first heard that, and I did not know it was written by two songwriters um, in another group called Klaatu, and we all remember where Klaatu comes from, right? Um, Robert Wise, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and uh, Klaatu, Baratus, Nikto. Anyway, this band uh, with, um, I believe it was Tim Cook uh, and his friend John, they were in the band and they wrote this song together and it went nowhere, of course, until Karen Carpenter with that magical voice picked it up and made it literally sing. And it's haunted me ever since, never dreaming that at some point uh, the theme of that song would become very current and would be discussion for the highest levels of the U.S. government, including the current director of national intelligence and the formation of the Pentagon of an office in in charge of UFO activities, which we can talk about a bit later. Anyway, um, it has been a long, long road 
and apparently it's about to enter a very interesting terrain. Welcome back. Thank you, Richard. I I love Karen Carpenter. I mean, if you want to cry, you got to listen to Karen. She was so deep in her heart. Yep. It was just yep. Such a tragedy. She died at such a young age. So anyway, Jimmy, you were working on this moon bounce technology, and then you kind of got together with David, and between the two of you, you thought, hmm, this can be easily repurposed for interplanetary or interstellar radio communication, right? Well, um, well yeah, chronologically, actually, I should make a make very clear the chronology of it. I, I started uh, yeah, Moonbounce in 2013, and in 2017, uh, that is where I had my first uh, experience. And that's where, and the, the reason why I, I repurposed it, <laughs> I mentioned that, I became interested in, uh, in a contact modality called CE5, or Close Encounter of the Fifth Kind. You know, people may be familiar with that. Um, and it's really human-initiated contact. And I was hearing that people were having success. I was very intrigued. I was seeing video on the Internet about it. And uh, I just felt, felt drowned to, to trying it, uh, literally. And so I was always, of course, you know, very, um, I was always, uh, you know, fascinated by the universe. I've been, you know, so fascinated by that and physics all my life. It just all made sense to me uh, to try it. So I was uh, interested. And so I said, look, you know, wh- why not use this capability that I have, this equipment, to try to maybe use it as a technological aid to see if that could help this, uh, you know, my first experience in CE5. And so, and that's what I did. And so essentially, I, I decided at the time, 2017, it was in April, 2017 to be precise, I created my first kind of homemade binary code message, uh, which in which I, it, in which I essentially, you know, put the, uh, encoded a, a greeting message. I included the coordinates, la- latitude, longitude, where I will be on a given night. I had, uh, you know, obviously a plan to be at a certain location on a very specific uh, day. Wait, wait, so wait. You, the, you, wait, wait. You gave them the address of your house? <laughs> no, I had actually, uh, I'll go a bit deeper. I was intending at the time to try C5 and try this contact modality, but, you know, I wanted to For find those who are C5. not familiar, can you go through the entire scale from CE1 through 5, what they mean? Well, well I'm not super familiar with that scale, to be honest, but I know the you know, from 1 to 5, you go from having a... You know, some are just a visual contact. I think. Yeah, the CE stands for close encounters, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and, this, right. and this comes so those, from Alan Hynek in Evanston, you know, who was the Air Force uh, consultant on ufology for decades and decades. So he, he coined this CE scale. One is seeing a distant moving point of light, which behaves in an erratic fashion, which is unidentified. And two... It's closer. You can see the craft. You can see the shape. Three, I think, is you actually see occupants, if I'm remembering this correctly. Uh, what's number four and five? Uh, there's one, I think, when you have actually, when you all take in or you're going on. Oh, the, oh, oh, the so-called uh, abduction. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And what That's is right. five? And a five is simply uh, human-initiated contact. Um, and, you know, it's 
different different modality to do it. Some use meditation. So you basically make the phone call and ET phones you, not home. That's right. That's right. It's a, so and, and it's combined often generally with consciousness work, right? So it is uh, a lot of people will simply use meditation and consciousness to, um, to, la- to launch this call. Yeah, when we have John yeah. and Michael join us in the third hour, we're going to talk about non-technological means of communication, uh, which gets really interesting. But let's stay with radio <clears throat> and EM for the time being. So you'd repurpose your rig or rigs to do this interplanetary phone calling and you literally coded a message in binary, right? That's right. That's right. Coded a message in binary. And I actually uh, uh, shared this message. It's uh, item number seven on on your website under the the guest item. So item seven is the actual binary code message that I developed and that I made a video of it. And uh, each sentence of the message, since it was homemade, I had the luxury to play with it a bit. So each sentence... Oh, there it is. Binary code transmission. 31... Can we actually play that? Will it play on... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's audio to it. Let let me see if it plays. Hang on here. Sure. (laughs) So this is what you sent into space. That's right. In 2017. Exactly. So, so each sentence of that message was encoded at the specific solfeggio frequency. And, and we can see on the on the picture here the you know the uh, the, the the packet of eight bits you know with the the one and zero. So yeah, this is the message I, I transmitted uh, with about. Uh, so what does it say? And it was and, an invitation. Yes. And and did you use redundancy? In other words, did you send it over and over and over again, or is that thirty-one seconds the message, and then you had to manually resend it? Yeah, I had to manually resend it. I sent it actually towards all the planets of the solar system. I, I beamed my antenna towards all the planets of the solar system. So you aimed it at Mars and, uh, and Venus yep. and the outer giants, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, all of them, all the ones visible during That's an entire correct. day or entire night? That's right. I, I, I don't recall. Maybe I, maybe I spent it over the course of a couple of days because the, obviously the planets are some, you know, are just available in the middle of the night. Or, you know, it's not always. A, and, and I needed to make, you know, for me to transmit toward this planet, I needed to wait for the planet to be at a certain angle because I had my house. And so, that, I mean, there was a, you know, technical complication. But yeah, so I transmitted towards all these astronomical bodies. And how long did you send? How many repetitions of the message? Um, I think it was just once. I mean, I sent it once, if I recall, well, you know, in each direction. And But I spent it over more than one day, so I, I transmitted more than one time or over a span of, of, of multiple days. And did you expect um, to receive an answer? No, 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 absolutely not. I, you know, I was, again, I was, the message, the message contained the date and the location and, and, and the coordinates where I will be on a specific night, on night of actually of May 1st, 2017. And, and uh, 
and I was that night I was going alone. I was actually going to scout to screen a, a site for future contact work. I mean, this was really the beginning for me. Uh, and so I, I had located the site on Google Map. Uh, it was located in Los Padres National Park in Rose Valley, California. And it seemed to be a, you know, a nice place. I had been there before, so, so there was a little lake, a very quiet place. So you have a portable antenna and radio system so you can travel around. Well, so what I did is I made the, trans, this, the, trans, the high power transmission with my large radio station. But when I got to the site, I, I brought my handheld radio with me. Um, but, and I had set this, the handheld radio to the same frequency that I had broadcasted this message you know, throughout the solar system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really, really not expecting anything, really. And so I got to the site uh, May 1st, 2017, uh, uh, you know, late evening, really. Uh, and I got there. It was a beautiful place, uh, as I expected. I had gone there before, and I looked at it. It was a quiet place. The sky was gorgeous. Uh, no light pollution in that area. There's no cell signal, no possibility of man-made interference there. It's really far in the middle of nowhere and, and deep into the valley. And so it, it looked perfect. And so after 20 minutes, after a few minutes, I, I think it was about 20 minutes, I sat down uh, in a chair. I, I brought a beach chair. And I said, I'm just going to relax a bit, you know, and uh, meditate maybe a little bit and just go back home because I had found the site that I was looking for for future contact work. And, you know, it was good. And so I I, I sat in my chair and I I set my handheld radio on the rooftop of my car and I was just relaxing and enjoying the scenery. There was a beautiful lake in front of me and, and, you know, I was in nature. And a few minutes later, the radio started interacting. and uh, it's all in the uh, video that I posted uh, on, the, on, the, on the website so the, the audience can, can look at it. The actual interaction is there, that, that interaction that I had. So, so the, well, not that one, but I have something that's very, very almost identical to that one. So uh, the radio started interacting, and uh, it, I, I got, first I was very intrigued because I had been using this radio for many years, doing satellite communication, doing all kind of radio communication with it. And the radio had never behaved this way before. I mean, never. And um, I was very intrigued. But, you know, at the time I said, okay, you know, it was getting cold outside. It was, uh, you know, late, late evening. I said, maybe the electronic is getting affected by the temperature or something. But I, I didn't make the connection. Quite honestly. I absolutely didn't make so the connection. So you didn't think you were receiving a signal? You thought it was some kind of noise? Uh, well, I, I thought there was some, something wrong with the radio or some kind of noise. I, I, I didn't make the connection because I was expecting, I said, if there's something happening, I, I may see a sighting, maybe a light in the sky or something. I had not at all uh, you know, thought about that possibility that they, they could interact through, through my own handheld radio. Uh, I had not thought about it. So, so what happened, I packed things up, back up, and I was quite annoyed, actually, that evening. I said the radio was, was annoying me because I was trying to relax here, and the radio was interacting. I didn't make the connection. Uh, because I had broadcasted this message with, you know, 100,000 watts throughout the solar system. It didn't come to me that they could reply or they could interact. On a handheld radio sitting on the roof of your car with a little stubby antenna on top. Exactly. And, you know, I am a scientist. I'm a radio engineer. There's no way in the world that I will will have concluded that there was a contact happening there without having eliminated all possibilities of, you know, false positives. There's just no way that it's not the way I, I operate. And so I, I packed everything back up and I just went back home. And, 
And so in the coming, in the following days, I know I tried to replicate that. So I, <laughs> I put my radio at home and I, I started, <clears throat> uh, you know, broadcasting with my large radio station with a lot of power to see if I could trigger the, the handheld radio with my large radio station with a lot of power. Nothing happened. The radio was completely silent. I kept the radio on my belt, you know, clipped on my belt underneath my shirt, and I went in town, uh, you know, doing a grocery, going to the bank. I said, if there's some kind of, if the radio is being triggered by some kind of interference, it's going to happen in the city, right? Not, not in, in, in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere. So I was, you know, doing my thing in town and bank and going to the bank, grocery store, doing my thing. The radio absolutely, completely silent as it has always had been in the past. You know, the squares was set to a degree that, you know, unless somebody was really uh, transmitting really close by, this radio was silent. So nothing happened. The radio was completely silent. Uh, and so I, I didn't know what to make of it, to be honest. And two weeks later, I decided to repeat the experience again. This time I had a friend came with me, but I did the same protocol. I, I recreated the message, or I used a similar message. I just updated the date. Uh, and the time that I will be at that location. And so I, I set another appointment, if you will, one more time. And so that's, that's what I did. And so I went back, back to the site uh, two weeks later. Uh, again, at the time, I had not made the connection yet with the radio. I was just intrigued. And so I got there to the site, and um, sure enough, minutes later arriving, I put radio back on my rooftop, my car. Actually, I had a little table, and I transferred the little table. Um, and then... Uh, Minutes later, sure enough, the radio started doing the very same thing. And then I started clicking and saying, holy cow. What did it sound like? It sounded like um, there was, I could clearly hear frequencies or tones. It was not like a white noise type of interference. Like, you know, if you have a radio that you, you know, you trigger the squelch, you're going to hear like that, the typical you know, mm-hmm. radio sound. It was not like that. It was... A little bit like that, that there was, I could hear frequencies embedded in it, and it was modulated. It was like doing... Just was like it like someone was so. keying an open mic? No, no, it doesn't. It didn't sound like that at all. Okay. Um, it, it was a mixture of frequencies. Uh, Jimmy, and a Jimmy. Bit of noise. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. I just want to... This is a very important point before you go on. I, when the radio does this phenomena, which sounds like static chirping, testing on a trifold meter both in radio frequency mode, there's zero activity, which means the incoming of what is causing it is not in the radio frequency band. And it, it when you switch your trifold meter to magnetic mode, there's activity, but that's not caused by incoming. That's just caused by the speaker in the radio so because we've eliminated no incoming radio frequencies which you would normally get if somebody was calling you on the radio because if i push the call um, button on my handheld same radio jimmy uses my radio frequency meter goes to the maximum on the trifold meter and so therefore we've eliminated that the incoming is rf so i just wanted to make that point before you go on yeah, yeah, and, and later on, and I uh, will get into it a bit later on uh, chronologically here, but yeah, that, that's one way that later on I kind of validated that there was something really anomalous happening because I ended up buying multiple radios <laughs> and uh, identical, set to the same frequency, all lined up on the table. And then when, when I was picking up one of the radio to make the transmission, you know, uh, the, the C5 transmission, 
either instant immediately after the transmission or seconds or minutes after the reply comes through but only through the radio that was used to broadcast the message all the other radios that are right next to it set to the same frequency are completely silent so this is obviously so, an intelligent response but it's not a em electromagnetic radial frequency response some other kind of energy information is using the radio as a transducer and is aimed specifically at that radio but it's not using radio frequencies to trigger the radio response exactly that's, that's exactly proven right. on the meter jimmy really important point what is the date when you're doing this in 2017 very important so my first my first contact was May 1st 2017. Okay, so that's right when Oumuamua is coming in racing towards the sun just as a background point. And I want to point out something phenomenal Richard that I just saw on the live tracker of Oumuamua. Its velocity is the golden ratio number. It's 6180 miles per hour. That's the golden ratio number. 1 to 1.618. So how could that be? So Oumuamua is coming in towards the sun. It will be very, it will be the closest point to the sun in October the 9th to the 11th of, of the very timing that Jimmy's doing. This is long before Oumuamua was detected. You can kind of back oh, yeah. the orbit before up. Was, you know, yeah, you're, no, it, 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 you're right. But they, that's because they were late at detecting it. But we know the date that Jimmy's giving us is it was coming oh yeah you, into... you you can reconstruct the orbit and know exactly where it was before and after it t- made the turn around the sun see i knew a muamu was artificial because its trajectory was filled with 19.5s oh yeah and look at its velocity right now i just sent you the link to the tracker six sixty one thousand eight oh miles per hour that's golden ratio number that's code this thing is planned it's well perfect. exactly it, it, its orbit was planned to be these magic numbers these hyperdimensional torsion field numbers jimmy i think what they were doing was using the torsion field to modulate your radio see that's what i'm getting at richard i think jimmy was tuned in to do this as oh is coming in and another thing that's very remarkable, and we don't know this for certain, but one of its estimated size is, and this is on Wikipedia, is 548 feet long. You have to understand Noah's Ark using the 20.601 inch royal cubit, and in the book of Ezekiel, God only uses the royal cubit. Yeah, but again, get, again, David, 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 David. Yeah. The only way we know even possible dimensions of a muamua, like a long pencil, is through reconstruction of its light curve. No one's ever taken a picture. We don't have any, it it was just a point of light. So these models for its shape and its dimensions and its length are all totally up for grabs. We just know that it's longer, much longer than wide. We know it's tumbling. We know it made this right-hand turn around the sun coming down from Lyra, which is symbolically incredibly significant in terrestrial ancient history it made a right hand turn about 90 degrees it's now headed toward pegasus uh exceeding the escape velocity of the sun and as it was leaving the sun because we only they only found it after it made the turn when it was leaving the solar system 
passing the Earth, it appeared to accelerate under non-cometary, non-ordinary physics propulsion. And I don't agree with Loeb about the solar sail at all, because there is a set of terrestrial experiments done by a friend of mine named Bruce De Palma, which duplicated exactly Oumuamua's bizarre anomalous acceleration. It can be duplicated at any lab on Earth, even a high school physics lab. And when I get to talk with Abby Loeb directly, I will give him the experiments. He will set it up. He will demonstrate to his own satisfaction that this is an incredibly anomalous physics going on here. So, yes, from my way of thinking, the, the, the orbit, the geometries, the coded numbers, these constants, the acceleration, all say interstellar, intelligently controlled vehicle. The only question is, was there anybody on board or was it an AI, like a Bracewell and, and, Pro? And, and Jimmy is tuned in perfectly as it's coming into the solar system from the outer solar system. Well, that's, that, that's another coincidence. We don't know the signals that Jimmy was receiving were coming from a Muamua. No, no, we don't. Well, we we need, remember, we, need to, we need to carefully delineate that which we've measured versus that which we're speculating. Anyway, continue, Jimmy. Yeah, and so and if I can just briefly here in terms of the physics of these transmissions, I just would like to point out the fact that, you know, if we if one postulates that the you know, civilizations out there that are that are, are close to us, that are, are within our solar system monitoring us, um, you know, these radio waves when they are transmitted, uh, and pe- most people don't know that with a single watt of power, you can reach the moon. And so an example of that is in 2014, China sent a probe called a 4M mission. It was a probe that was going to the moon and back. And that probe was with a little transmitter of a one watt transmitter and a very small vertical antenna. Just like a handheld radio, literally, even a handheld radio has more than one watt, has typically five to eight watts. And that probe, as it was going to the moon and back, was uh, transmitting telemetry and, and information and the amateur radio community on the earth including myself were able to detect and decode these messages mm-hmm. as far as the moon and that probe was using one single watt of power okay so we, we only space, got a, we only got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour here let me get to the, the MacGuffin which is did you record the signal on this handheld set of radios that's the first question <laughs> I do have hundreds of recordings of it. Okay, second question, and we'll pick this up after the bottom of the hour. Did you decode it? Do you understand what they, whoever they are, were trying to say? Yes, Jimmy. Yes, Jimmy. <laughs> yes, and I shared that with David uh, a few days ago, actually. Okay, so we will, we, we, will, we will get to that um, when we come back after the bottom of the hour. I do want to say one thing. NASA routinely transmits television images from like the New Horizons mission on an antenna system with like 20 watts of power, 4 billion miles away. So yes, radio frequencies, if you have the right antenna uh, in the right band, so there's a lot, not a, a lot of no- background noise, can be extraordinarily efficient. A 20 watt signal is like the, the power of a refrigerator light bulb. 
So in the radio spectrum, this is incredibly efficient. But what you picked up sounds like the radio was only acting as a transducer for an invisible form of communications that general physics is not aware of, i.e. modulation of the torsion field. Because EM and torsion are like both hands of the same underlying energy. And at that point, we need to stop. Okay, so we will take a pause. My guests this morning are David Sarita and radio engineer par excellence, uh, Jimmy Blanchett. And we're talking about an extraordinary, real, verifiable set of incidents of some kind of extraterrestrial communication. And the last question I asked, to which the answer was yes, have you decoded the signal? We will find out in a couple of minutes what they, whoever they are, were trying to say. They're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're talking interplanetary, interstellar, and maybe even interdimensional communications tonight. Don't touch that dial. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, November 27, 2021. Our conversation this morning with David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett involves interplanetary, 
or interstellar communication by means of, well, kind of my means of radio, but it's looking here in this experiment like the radios were kind of a uh, device of mutual convenience because EM tests, radio frequency tests, when the radio was working, when it was, you know, receiving a signal, indicate it was not receiving an electromagnetic radio frequency signal. It was responding to a signal, but it was responding in the only way it could through EM modulated sound. But the input, that seems to have been something totally different, which of course presages the question, what say, gentlemen? Uh, uh, I want to point this out. This is very important because before Jimmy goes to his original experience, when Jimmy and I met, we planned to, on the Lions Gate, which was August 8th, to do a moon bounce at a moment where the Great Pyramid of Egypt was in a perfect alignment between the antenna and the moon and the, the date and the time so that we would transmit. And we transmitted a series of tones or frequencies which were octaves of frequency calculations I made on the Great Pyramid. We had a guy filming with his iPhone camera the Great Pyramid, which we would run the video through an algorithm software to detect energy changes in the Great Pyramid, even though that signal would be detectable anywhere on half of the planet the center of the signal would be at the location of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. So we did this moon bounce on August the 8th, and right in the middle of the transmission, Jimmy was downloading a, a, an incredible mathematical formula, which I helped him resolve mathematically perfectly, which was a ratio of his transmission frequency of 144.1 to um, 43,200,000, or the number 432 times 10 to the fifth. And the ratio between those two numbers would be the speed of light in metric perfectly. And, and, and that revelation occurred in perfection during this moon bounce transmission. And later, when the, the video that we got from our, our friend um, in, in Cairo, who was videotaping the Great Pyramid, we, could, we ran it through this algorithm software that detects small changes in the energy field of, of, the, of, of what you're filming. We could see a bright turquoise and orange aura pulsating off the pyramid. And, and that video, again, if you go to, to Richard's site and you go to my section, you'll see a link to david3.co transmissions. And you can watch that video there. And it, it's very remarkable that during this transmission, they were, it's like some form of intelligence was giving both of us the ability to formulate this new perspective on the 432, the 144.1 to the speed of light. So I'll, I'll let Jimmy take over from there. And that, by the way, is item number one, David. The David Sarita transmissions. Yeah. Okay. Jimmy, back to May of 2017. 
Yes, and if I can do a little uh, parenthesis here, because we're talking about some mathematics that came through during the, the Lion Gates transmission, which was done at 432 megahertz, again, via moon bounce. Uh, I, I believe at, I, at the time, actually, I, had the, I was using two, a quarter of a million watts at 432 megahertz. Um, and, and the other thing that came through in terms of information, which absolutely blew my mind, really blew my mind, this frequency on red 44.1 megahertz, I was very intrigued as to why I was getting all these interactions, which, by the way, it, it did not only happen on May 1st, 2017. These interactions are still continuing today. I do have hundreds of videos of it and sightings and folks out there can, can watch the videos on your website. Um, the, the other information that came through, I was wondering, and, and what came to me is that you know, by taking this frequency, 144.1, which obviously had to fall within the amateur radio band because I'm, you know, limited by the license and there's a very specific band, which is actually from 144 megahertz to 148 megahertz. Um, and what came to me was to multiply this frequency, uh, 144.1, by the speed of light. So I did that. I just had, I felt I needed to do that. So I, I, I used my calculator and just pointed the, the numbers. And the result that came out was mind-blowing. The result that came out was exactly 43,200.0. Very precise. <laughs> and 43,200, I didn't know what that number meant. Um, I certainly recognized 432. Well, that number, 432 or multiples thereof, is coded all over the damn solar system. In the that, diameter right. of the sun, the diameter of the moon, the ratio of orbits, the layout of the Giza Plateau, uh, there are so many examples. Oh. And, 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 it is, and it is also, it is also exactly right, it is also this 43,200 and the item number eight on the website uh, that I, I shared, okay. uh, and we see a nice presentation from Grant Hancock, the 43,000... 200 is is the scale factor of the great pyramid of giza yes yeah exactly yeah uh mm. you know if you if we take for instance this is uh, a hyperdimensional frequency yeah. measurement linear length it is part of the mathematics between three dimensions and higher dimensions it it gets into uh coxeter's famous you know 27 lines on the general cubic surface by a Schlafly. in other words Someone is sending you guys information <clears throat> coded according to ancient terrestrial high in technology intelligence in previous epochs of high civilization on this planet, which were then coded for later iterations of mankind in these ancient sacred sites. And, and Jimmy, you're not going to even believe this, Richard. I just calculated, can you, if you go on the live tracker that I send you to Oumuamua at 61,808 miles per hour divided by 432 is 143.0 perfectly, which means it resolves in a ratio to 432. And how close, Jimmy, is 143 to 144.1? That's right now on the live tracker of Oumuamua. There may be a connection here. The other thing I want to point out, and this is one of my items, is I took all of the highest absorption frequencies for the nine colors of the rainbow spectrum in the trillion hertz bands, which is their actual frequency. That's red, orange, yellow, lemon, 
green, turquoise, blue, indigo, and violet. So you take those frequencies and then you divide it by a musical octave, which is the number two, and it turns out there are exactly 48 octaves of every color before you reached the, 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 the theta part of the human brain. You get into theta frequency bandwidth, which is where consciousness begins. It's a little above delta. There are 48 bands. Now, 48 times nine colors, 48 octaves of the colors times nine is 432, <laughs> the same number. Yeah, it, it's all connected. And, and that's where also I was so um, thankful that David uh, agreed to, uh, to work with me. Because David has an, an extraordinary ability to connect the dots that's just heard. And it, it was, uh, there's so much information, there's so much happening and almost every week now it's accelerating. Uh, that that help you know and that collaboration is, is very precious to me. Uh, the one more thing that I want to point out that's very important here that blew my mind. Prior a, a day prior, actually it was uh, it was a day prior the the August eighth transmission, uh, the Lionsgate transmission. No, wait, 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 wait. You keep, you keep saying Lionsgate. People on what Lionsgate means? Because when I hear Lionsgate, I think of the film company. No, it's the, it's okay. August the eighth. This, this past August the 8th, Richard. Of 2021. When, 2021 is when Jimmy and I did our first collaboration. So we were sending a series of pyramid musical tones that I calculated, bouncing off the moon. The center of the transmission would reflect and hit the pyramid itself. And it was during that transmission that we were mathematically resolving this ratio of 144.1 to 432 in the speed of light perfectly. We were going out of our minds during the transmission. Paul Hellyer dies that day, and my beloved wife, Crystal, dies the very next day. Now, that something so powerful happened in that moment. Hmm. And now, Jimmy, I'm so blown away, and Richard, looking at the velocity of Oumuamua, 61,808 miles per hour divided by 432, is exactly 143. You see, you have to understand, it's not 143.725. It means it resolves. 143.074, which is, which is so close to 100% resolving, and it's also so close to the number 144.1. And now, remember, Jimmy... When, when, hang on, hang on. When you say Omua tracker, you need to explain to people what... Okay, there's looking. a live tracker right now that shows you the velocity of Oumuamua and where it's currently residing at is about four, 3.6 hours at the speed of light from Earth. It's 2.450 billion miles from Earth right now. And, of course, it's accelerating away. No, it's, this, no, it's not accelerating. It's decelerating. No, it's decelerating. It's just not it's decelerating current. as fast as it would under normal Keplerian okay, motion. So it, it says right now that the speed of a Moa is 61,808 miles per hour. So that's golden ratio number right there, right, for one. It's, it's golden ratio. And 432... Now, see, this is, number is constantly changing. Sure. Because when you throw a ball into the air, it goes up, slows down. If you could throw it fast enough in excess of seven sure. miles per second, it would still slow down, but it would never fall back to Earth. So <clears throat> a Muamua is falling upward away from the sun, toward the constellation of Pegasus. It'll never return, but it's slowing down as it's falling upward 
because it can never be recaptured by the sun. So those numbers you're citing are only applicable to tonight when you're doing this show. Yeah, that's even more mind They will change tomorrow and the next day. They were different yesterday and the day before. So that resolution of that particular coincidence is only applicable to tonight's broadcast right now. And that is incredibly weird. It's like it knows we're listening. And again, that's... Or or it quietly, gently impelled me to have you guys on tonight. Yeah, it's conscious. See, uh, again, Jimmy, I mean, uh, the coincidence of you doing this (laughs) and your first experiment as was coming in you know, I, we need to track the exact date on its position when you did your first experiment. Maybe it was somewhere in the range of Pluto or Saturn, and it was heading towards the sun because it reached the closest to the sun on, on September the 9th of 2017. No, all that can be backdated and timed and graphed out and everything because the orbit within the – see, we don't know whether it was accelerating as it fell toward the sun in a non-Newtonian fashion. If it conforms to the physics that I know, that I've seen the experiments of, it was accelerating as it was falling toward the sun in a non-Newtonian fashion, and it was accelerating as it whipped around the sun in a non-Newtonian fashion. So you can't use the ordinary Newtonian Kepler equations to calculate where it was. You have to introduce that fudge factor, and we don't know. The only way we'd know would be to use the De Palma model to see where it might have been within a range of error when Jimmy was picking up his anomalous, you know, signals. And see, the other thing, Richard, is that the number that Jimmy was using with the handheld radios, which is 144.1 megahertz, when Jimmy and I calculated the wavelength of 144.1 megahertz proportional to a monopole antenna, I said, wait a minute, Jimmy. Did you know that that's a Hebrew long? I was going to say 144,000 yeah. is so, redolent so yeah, in, is, in the Old Testament and in Revelation because that's one of the measures of the flying city of Jerusalem. Yeah, right. there are really two connections to that number that's really important. That, and so that's the other calculation that came through is if we we turn – this, this frequency on 144.1 and calculate the quarter wavelength. We get we get the Hebrew long qubit at 99.6% accuracy, or the Egyptian royal qubit at 99.4% accuracy. And that's that Jimmy's antenna. Jimmy's antenna has these little cross antennas, and they happen to all be that length. That of a monopole. A monopole emits a wavelength four times its height, and a dipole antenna emits a, um, a wavelength two times its height, which is just an octave, right? So, so let me get this very clear. Jimmy, you selected 144.1 megahertz because of the size of your existing antennas, right? No, Jimmy didn't yep. know that it was a Hebrew long <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm wanting to know why he picked 144.1. Right. This was this – was, um, well – the spectrum first I had obviously to be within the amateur radio band between 144 and 148. The space communications are happening in the lower portion of the band of the 144. And so I picked randomly. Well, now, wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you there again. 
why is the legal licensable FCC? Are you are you in the U.S. or in Canada? Uh, I'm Canadian, but I live in the U.S. Right. You, all right. So I've, we're uh, under I've FCC, which was the Communications Act of 1934, which set up these wavelengths for various usages, right? Radio yes. broadcasting, commercial broadcasting, amateur radio, military. That, that, in other words, allocating the spectrum to various usages, right? That's right. Who decided that the amateur band began huh. at 144? This is a very good and very good observation, and that's, you know, one really has to wonder. Well, why I'm going to blow your coming. mind with another coincidence. Did you follow the recent public rolling disclosure on the UFOs the U.S. Navy has been reporting since 2017? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. And yeah. We're, now, we're now at the level where the Pentagon is setting up an office of UFO mitigation. Uh, there's a more formal yeah. name, whatever. <clears throat> there's a U.S. senator, Senator Kristen Gillibrand from New York, who wants to modify the annual Defense Appropriation Act to include setting up under the Department of Defense a UFO office for formal research, mitigation, exploration, et cetera, et cetera. This is all moving at warp nine. And are you aware that there was a Pentagon report that came out last uh, several months ago, I think around June, which talked about the number of cases <clears throat> that they had reviewed from the uh, USS Nimitz and the uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the two aircraft carrier battle groups that were in the report with their F-18 pilots interacting with UFOs slash UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon, because they are trying to you know change the name to get rid of UFO history, which is not going to work. Anyway, all of this boils down to a conference that was held in Washington a few days ago on November 10th, where the d director of national intelligence, her name is Avril Haynes, who coordinates the intelligence for 16 uh, intelligence agencies under the U.S. government, and then reports their results directly to the president of the United States. Ms. Haynes, at this conference, held at the National Cathedral in Washington on November 10th. We're going to talk about it again tomorrow night here on this show. Yeah, we both watched that, by the way, Richard. Two-hour two hour video. She mentioned that there were, wait for it, 144 cases of the <sighs> UFO phenomenon. They analyzed, gentlemen, these are not coincidences. There's a mega big picture here connecting this phenomenon to our most ancient and secret and withheld and censored history of high technology human civilization here on planet earth in and other words what? they're all part of a set of rolling time capsules to bring us into consonance with our own amazing history the encoding of these numbers which is fundamental hyperdimensional physics in these ancient sacred sites, the same coding in your radio receptions and transmissions, and the same coding in the number of cases the Pentagon is choosing to reveal 
as part of this rolling, coded, Emily Dickinson-type disclosure. I know, Richard, Richard, this is, there's another one here. Well, you got to point, this is really fast. Kevin Day, radar operator on the Princeton. In this same case, you have the Nimitz and the Princeton. Okay, he said this on Netflix. Nobody noticed that, and David Fravor said the same thing. They had a UAP jump 60 miles in one second. And guess how that relates to 432 and 144. It cut 60 miles in a second times 60 seconds in a minute times 60 minutes an hour is 216,000 miles an hour times a musical octave, which is two, is 432,000 miles an hour. <laughs> now, if you take, if you take one, 432, 432 divided by just 144 is three. It's a one to three ratio, a perfect third. So I think... Um, April, we we both watched the whole thing. When you told us to watch it, Richard, I sat down and watched the whole thing, and and I'm telling you, they're scared because when when Kevin Day, when I went on his Facebook and I posted this, he deleted it right away. It's like all these the New York Times and NBC News are saying, well, they could be the Chinese because the UAPs appear to be going Mach five. God, we were going Mach four, five, and six with the X fifteen for God's sake. These things are going 60 miles in a second. 216,000 miles an hour is an octave of 432. So now we're starting to see a pattern. We're starting to see harmonics in the way they're behaving. These are coded, these are coded actions, gentlemen, trying to yeah. a- acquaint us again with our hidden suppressed history, which all goes back to this physics, which is in these numbers. Again and again and again and again, it's obvious now that someone is trying to introduce us to our hidden, suppressed past to the Karen Carpenter song, and we are your friends. There's one more data point I think is, is, is relevant to mention. If we take the flower of life, for instance, that's item 10 uh, that I shared on the website, item 10. The flower of life, if you, if you count the number of petals, you know, the little kind of curves, the, the number of petals, the number of like curved triangles within the flower of life, mm-hmm. there are 90 petals and there are 54 curved triangles that sums up to exactly 144 <laughs> within the flower of life. These are the components of creation. And if we do a, a, a Fibonacci sequence along the, the flower of life, we end up, you know, the one, one, two, uh, two, three, five, uh, you know, the sequence. The, the, when we do the round the clock, the top, the, 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 the 12 o'clock position ends up exactly at 144 on that uh, Fibonacci sequence. So it's all connected. And it's provably it's connected. This is not speculation. The speculative part is who, if they're aliens, would choose to open hailing frequencies at these specific, coded, recursive, incredibly meaningful to ancient humans on Earth and spaceflight and energy and consciousness frequencies, are they being picked at random? No, they're part of a coherent message. The medium is the message, and they're trying to 
in a very prime directive kind of way put us back in touch so we're in control of how we explore and unfold and unveil our own suppressed history. See, the, it, the universe is communicating. It's happening right in front of us. Like in, in, in this, this case of the FRBs, the fast radio bursts. Well, let's not get into that. We only got about four okay. minutes. We got four minutes. Let okay. us save that to when Michael and John join us. Okay. I, I'm sure they're chomping at the bit. Because <laughs> what I want to do in the next hour is I want to expand the idea that communication is just not limited to radio frequencies or the torsion field, that it encompasses much more. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a very striking example. I live in an old, old hacienda, adobe type house on the edge of a cliff. And there's a hole somewhere, so I've had a problem with mice. Except the, the mouse problem turned into a mouse opportunity because someone, and you're not going to believe this, I can't prove it yet, but someone has been influencing the mice to create geometry of little things on the floor, like stones or leaves or bits of toilet paper. They keep replicating fundamental hyperdimensional geometry over and over and over again. In other words, I don't think I have the most genius mice in New Mexico or on the planet. I think someone is influencing via the torsion field the consciousness of these mice and turning little terrified creatures that run at warp nine when I see them or they see me to where they literally are creating geometry out of pebbles, out of bits of toilet paper, out of leaves of plants, and they're doing it, among other places, on the floor plan of a large Russian-style pyramid I have set up in one end of the, of the living room to run my hyperdimensional field experiments on pyramidal geometry and shapes. In other words, someone is sending messages having nothing to do with radio, having nothing to do with voice, having nothing to do with you know appearances. They're just doing replicative geometry, and they've been doing it for over two and a half years. Wow. Incredible. And on, of course, on, on that did. note, we got to kind of take a break here. My guests this morning are David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett. We're going to be joined, Keith, I hope you're paying attention, by Michael Hall and John Womack at the top of the hour. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And we're going to be talking about full spectrum communications in all modalities and all dimensions when we return. Don't touch that dial.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight, here from the Land of Enchantment. It is now The Other Side of Midnight here in New Mexico. It's uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning. And we've been joined by two additional guests, John Womack, who was our kind of resident uh, out-of-body experiencer. And he's also a hell of a producer, and he does really cool animations, you know, Uh, John, you and Jimmy should kind of talk because Jimmy did a wonderful promo video for the the show tonight. We also have Michael Lee Hall with us. And Michael's claim to fame is that he he talks to folks that are not from here. I kind of love that statement, (laughs) not from here. And he doesn't use radio. And so, gentlemen, uh, there are four of you, so we're going to have to kind of organize some traffic here. So let me start with Michael. Uh, you've heard, I presume, the first part of the show. Uh, what, yes. what are your reactions? <clears throat> well, it's blowing my mind because right away I can tell you when your A note is tuned to 432 hertz, guess what your D note is would be tuned to? 144. <laughs> yeah. But check this out. Uh, double tetrahedron has 720 degrees of angle when you add them all up. Well, what would a double tetrahedron have, which encodes your 19.5, Richard? It's 1440. Amazing. See, that's why all these numbers go back to the hyperdimensional connection. It's all about our connectivity to higher dimensional state spaces and where consciousness, our consciousness, really is hanging out. In this model, life on Earth, life in 3D, is kind of like virtual reality. And at the moment, the bandwidth between our third dimension and other higher dimensions, in my experience, is very, 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 very limited for some reason. Uh, We're kind of looking at some possibilities to explain this. But at the moment, it's a very low bit rate. And yet, whoever's trying to communicate using the mice 
are giving us hyperdimensional geometry over and over and over again. John, your thoughts? Hello, Richard. That's how I say hi. I was going to say, he answers it. He answers it. He opens sailing frequencies with a frequency. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was an honor of Michael. How are you doing, Michael? Nice to meet you. Uh, Nice to meet you as well. And I want to say, David, it's really nice hearing your voice. And Jimmy, you're amazing. I, uh, I feel very honored to be in this conversation. So thank you, Richard. Yeah, as Keith just said, the message is in the music. (laughs) <laughs> well, it is. It's it is. obviously somebody's trying to say something important. And I think the importance is this is who it's the entree to this is who you really have been all along until something intervened and made you forget everything. Well, That's- Richard, I wanted to say something last week when Michael was on, and that is that when you go to the home of souls, which is the sun, you're guided into your space. You're inside this massive sun and you're, you hear this music and it's beautiful and it's going through you because you're just made of energy and you're flying through the sun and you're following this signal. It's a sound and it's your birth frequency. When you are created, they make you at, you know, no two souls are alike and you have this ID, this fingerprint or brainwave print, whatever you want to call it, a soul print. And it's a sound, and, and it's beautiful. It's incredible. You know, it's strange. I won the Steve Vai Ibanez Guitar Challenge, and Steve told me that exact same thing, that in a deep state of meditation he heard, like, galactic music, and it was the most beautiful thing he had ever heard. That's awesome. I can't believe Steve said that. That is so cool. Indeed. I've always resonated with Gregorian chants for some reason. It's one of the reasons I kind of stayed a Catholic for a long time because the music is really cool. Okay, um, we're at a kind of a break point here. So why don't we pick back up with Jimmy and David and their experiments, and then you guys can chime in if you have some thoughts or reactions or questions or whatever. Michael, that was brilliant what you just brought in there in the relation to the 144 and the 432 in regards to the music um, scale. Michael and I know each other from way back. We made a movie from here to Andromeda together. And yeah. See, it time. also shows us, gentlemen, that the intelligence communities, a la Ms. Haynes, are fully aware of all of this, all of it, and its ultimate meaning. They may even have some answers that they've been suppressing, but there is a time coming, that event at the National Cathedral, as you're going to hear tomorrow night, with some really intriguing connections between the cathedral and ancient England and the ancient archaeology all over the, you know, the uh, Isle of England, including the really incredible Glastonbury Zodiac, bespeaks to our ancient heritage our ancient connection to our cousins out there and why we have been cut off overtly from the family. In other words, there's a huge missing piece of the soap opera here that these codes are not getting at unless I believe they are meant to give us the keys to open the doorways to ask the proper questions. 
Well, one of one of the ways people have a a psychic connection. I've been meditating every day for forty five years, and I've studied a lot of meditation techniques. And it's really hard to describe to somebody what it feels like to go into a supreme state of bliss, which which happens to me almost every day now. But one thing I noticed, just like when you strum a guitar, I did a test with these handheld radios at 432 megahertz. And if I press the call button on my other hand, my skeleton, because calcium is metal and it's a conductor, I can measure on a trifold meter in radio waves, the radio waves coming off my other hand, which means my whole skeleton is vibrating at that frequency. And that begs a different tuning of the human instrument as pythagoras called it the musica humana when we when we tune a guitar or a piano or an instrument and it vibrates our internal strings we tune our nervous system to a frequency which can open up uh, neural pathways to an experience that can happen in a telepathic or or psychic manner and so therefore, a musical instrument can be very instrumental in tuning consciousness in the same way that when we were driving down the highway in the 60s or the 70s and you were tuning to 92.1 FM frequency modulation, your nervous system, because of that antenna in the car, was also vibrating in that frequency. And so therefore, it's not just technology. Right, A guitar, you could say a guitar is technology in a sense, but you can also say that it's a tuning instrument for the human nervous system. And one of the things I've been able to do for the last 20 years is calculate thousands of frequencies and alternative music scales to see what happens and what experiences might open to a person. For example, this was really shocking to me. When I when I took the nine base colors and divided the trillion hertz bands of every color divided by an octave, when I came right to the bottom, I could, I could see everything. I, I looked at the Tesla-Schumann resonance of 7.83 hertz, and I said, that's the octave of the color green. Maybe that's why all the plants on the earth are green, because 7.83 is the green octave. And so, therefore, you start to see what's really happening in, in both how consciousness interacts with frequency and how frequency triggers consciousness. So maybe some of this impetus of frequencies in these, for example, the fast radio bursts that we're getting are, are opening doorways in consciousness. And recently... Okay, hang on, hang on. Now that you yeah. brought that up, define fast radio bursts. Give us a little history as to... Who's detected them, where and when, what the mystery is for mainstream radio astronomers, and then the amazing code cracking that you did, which I think opens up a whole new doorway to understanding, again, what someone is trying to tell us in a very prime directive kind of way. Okay, so the first thing, before I even go to the FRBs, is when, when Jimmy was doing his transmissions at the 144.1 and he got, he got this response and he recorded it, you know, the chirping on the radio, and he ran it through a spectrometer software and he determined that he, they were sending him back, whoever they are, eight numbers in the form of frequencies. 
And when, when I first looked at the numbers Jimmy gave me, and he's going to show you how they correspond to Jimmy, every... do we have that in your items? Can we play it? Yes, we have in the, the items. Eight tones, so the eight tones, Jimmy. It's called uh, decoding the eight tones. That's and the which, uh, which, eight tones. which number will it's it item be? Number, it's item number six. Looking at item six. six. Okay, there's a video of 14 minutes here uh, that explains the whole story about these eight tones, which are eight frequencies that are embedded in one of the, I call them, energy signatures coming back from these interactions. Okay, if I click so on I this ran... video, where do we get to the frequencies? Okay, I, I will give you the time. Give me one second here. Okay, this is real-time uh, video. Yeah, let you go. yeah, it's exactly at six minutes and... Actually, hold on, I have it here. Okay, go seven, seven minutes and 45. 7.45, okay. Going to 7. Tell you what, let me start at 7.40. And it's okay, 7.40, you will see it as well. Okay. 7.40, so we see these eight frequencies. Um, and again, the video, that video that we're looking at okay, right I'm, now. I'm not hearing you, you can. For some reason, I'm not. No, hearing. no, we don't. Oh, I'm not hearing it. So... Why am I not hearing it? Should be set up perfectly. Uh. Six, six minutes and thirty. I apologize. Yeah. Oh, six, six minutes six and thirty. 30. Okay. Yeah. What we were seeing, what I mentioned was, to, we can see the frequencies of the. To actually hearing it, these are. Okay. Let me get to the beginning of this. Okay. Here we are. So they are modulating the white noise. Well, there. And, and so what we see here is um, the sound that we hear, this that we can clearly hear some static noise, but within that transmission, when you run this transmission through a spectrum analyzer, and it's all shown in the video here, you, it's alive. When I did the experiments, it was to exactly show how I did yeah, it. Yeah, I can see the I little red arrows, and yep. you've got it in, in Hertz. You've got 310.5, okay? Exactly, exactly. So if you go now to 7 minutes and 40 of the video, okay. so for a long time I, I was unable, I, I didn't know if these numbers meant anything because I, I could not recognize, you know, there are two things that we see. I mean, 369 hertz is, you know, something that we could say would be significant, the 369, and the 783, which corresponds to Schumann resonance if you take 7.83, but I could not make sense of these numbers for three years, literally. And uh, oh my God! Look at look ago. at this. You got a graph, a, a graphic, and the eight mm -hmm. tones contain in those frequencies the radius of the sun, speed of light, the Schumann resonance, the diameter of the Earth, diameter of the Moon, the mass constant pi, the man constant, the mass constant e, which is the base of natural logarithms, and the light harmonic. Well, again, 144. This is, exactly. This is very intelligent noise. 
Like I have very intelligent mice, you have very intelligent noise. (laughs) And mice are noisy. Actually, they do talk to each other. I just haven't recorded them yet, but they are talking. <laughs> See, the, for when Jimmy first gave me these eight numbers, I, I looked at music scales, you know, on a university website, and it turns out six of them were black keys on the piano, and two of them were white keys, and there was only a slight deviation of the numbers. So at first we thought, this is like a musical message. It's like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? You're playing music to each other. Mm-hmm. So my wife got tape and put you know, on the piano, all the keys, and I played some music with those eight tunes. They're very close to to notes on the piano. But then Jimmy found out that, again, in the static white noise you're hearing, there's no radio frequency activity using a radio frequency meter that can see all the way up to 8 gigahertz. So we know that it's not coming into the radio that way. There, there's magnetic activity, but that's just the radio chirping itself. The speaker... On a radio will cause So it's that. being used uh, as a transducer. Yeah, some kind yeah, of a transducer. But we don't know what... So it's taking an invisible energy information source. I think it's the torsion field. If I was to measure when you're getting these frequencies, guys, with the Acatron, I'll bet the Acatron would go nuts because it measures inertial changes. It doesn't measure radio EM and it would it would respond to changes in the 3D space-time continuum caused by the changing torsion field, which is really the ether. And you, these numbers, these frequencies, are coded into the various things that I just mentioned. Yeah, and, and we can see the details of the calculations further in the in that video. So at seven minutes fifty-five, we see the how. By simply using these eight tones, by either multiplying them, you know, by one to the other, or doing simple divisions of these eight, which is exactly like the math and geometry laid out in Sidonia, in angles and proportions and linear distance. Exactly. Exactly. It's coded uh, information designed to not tell us what reality is, but give us the tools to approach and open the door to a new reality, which is really a very ancient, ancient reality, which we've been cut off from, and in part we still are being cut off from, except I think we're now in what I would term rolling symbolic disclosure, which is why Ms. Haynes is talking in code. You see, yeah, it, absolutely, absolutely, and I just want to mention something important here, which I never made public before but the handheld radios more than half of my handheld radios that are producing these interactions no longer transmit in the electromagnetic spectrum it's as if these devices have been changed they've been modified they, oh. they no longer behave like a normal radio oh, and Jimmy wow. tell him tell him how this is another phenomenon that Jimmy and I both tested we found it's location specific so I've got four of these handheld radios and when they're brand new if i press the call button during one of our transmissions and we've been transmitting to mercury venus um uh, mars earth and jupiter and saturn so far this is using jimmy's uh using jimmy's system that he invented 
that radio, Richard, I'll go in my house and I'll, I'll leave the radio on all night on 144.1 megahertz and no sound. But when I walk back into my little podcast office, 40 feet from the house, it starts chirping like crazy. So Jimmy tested the same thing. He went out in the middle of nowhere, Jimmy. Tell them what happened when you did the same thing in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere, this is, this, you know, this is what happened. I, I had um, actually, yeah, this is interesting. I had produced a message because I wanted to, to activate and see if we could activate other frequencies that could be used more by the general public, right? Because these frequencies are reserved for amateur radio communication and so on. So um, I, I transmitted a message asking whoever's out there to see if they could activate a frequency, it was 467.7125 megahertz, because it is a frequency that corresponds to small uh, radios that people can buy, you know, in the electronic shop. I mean, they are like FRS radios, we call them. And, uh, is this so related the to the, to the uh, little, you know, uh, transistor radios we used to have in the 50s? Yeah, you can, you can buy these anywhere in, in, in the stores. Uh, they, are, they are for public use um and they like are a channels. basically a yeah like walkie-talkie if you will but they are they are they are uhf, ah, UHF okay. frequencies. all right okay 467 megahertz to be precise in that range it's called family radio service frs radios and people can buy them so people use them to go camping and do activity outdoor and stuff like that or to keep track of um, the kids in another part of the house that kind of thing that's right <laughs> that's right so you know i mean to me it, this whole uh radio contact modality was not highly helpful to humanity, but you know, only the amateur radio people can transmit on this frequency. So I made a message to activate, and I requested to activate that frequency, 467. Wait, wait, you made, you made a request to whom? Well, whoever is out there. I, I created In other words, again, whoever a, a your ET coding open hailing frequency source is, you mentally sent them a, a request saying, please start transmitting on this openly publicly available family radio frequency band it wasn't mentally it was i transmitted that message but through using a radio I, my large radio station my, my powerful radio okay station. all right all right okay i did that and i also did that with a handheld radio and i did that See, if you'd called up again. michael he could have done it mentally but anyway <laughs> yeah well consciousness is is completely linked to that i mean these radios, as far as I, 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 my experience so far, are just technological aid. I mean, consciousness is above that. And, you know, when we say we, we have an intention to do something, we naturally, you know, put out there the intention. We put out there consciously the intention. And so it's available. That information right, is available right. in the Kind of a dual band so thing. Exactly. So anyway, I transmitted this request. And um, I was, uh, when I, I transmitted with my small handheld radio, I was in the middle, again, of natural... Uh, Rose Valley National Park. It was uh, Los Padres National Park. No interference. There's nothing around. No cell signal. Wait, 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 where, and, where is this park located? Uh, Rose Valley, California. It's uh, Los Padres National Park. It's close to Ventura, California. Close to Santa Barbara. Between Va Santa Barbara, California, and Ventura. Oh, California. so it's so it's near the coast, north of LA. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Not far from Vandenberg. And, yeah, oh, that's right. And um, anyway, um, you know, seconds after transmitting this message by radio, I had 
I had multiple radios, right? They all, again, some were set to 144.1, but some were set to that 467.7125 megahertz, which I was attempting to activate. The family band, yes, okay. And I do have video of that, by the way. All that I have documented on videos, and incredibly, incredibly, <laughs> the radio started interacting on 467.7125 megahertz. Well, they want to satisfy and the customer. What the it, customer it, it wants? Was, customer gets that's right, that's right. It, we just need to ask right i mean that's this old but remember jimmy when you, so you tested when you walked away from the location yeah. and it stopped and when you came back with the radio it did it again yeah so see yeah. hang on hang on hang on let's let, 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 not this is very 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 important okay because part of the hyperdimensional torsion model is that the <clears throat> geodetic grid around the earth as a rotating planet is very specific in terms of resonance in the hyperdimensional field. It sounds to me like they're tuning their communications very specifically to within feet to where you are geodetically on the surface of the planet, which is exactly why sacred sites are located where they are. Exactly, well, Richard. A very good point. You're exactly. bringing a very good point, Richard, because that location... Was, and this was, goes back, sorry guys, this goes back to the work of yeah. Carl Monk, C-A-R-L-M-U-N-K, Carl Monk, decades ago. He sent me a letter, and he had all the right frequencies in the letter, so I paid attention. He's worked out a self-published book listing the locations of astonishing number of sacred sites all over the planet with different cultures going back 10, 15, 20,000 years with the ratio of the sides in relation to their geodetic location encoded in the geometry of the sacred sites themselves. So I know categorically, real science, this is a very ancient, ancient system from our own past which is encoded all around us. That's why tomorrow night's program with the ancient sites in England is going to be very important. You guys might want to listen. And why it's now being updated to 21st century telecommunications because that's the language we currently are speaking. That, that's an excellent point. The item nine that I shared on the site, it's called Ancient Sites Perfect. They align around the globe. It's a three-minute video. It shows how the most significant ancient sites on the planet, including, of course, the Great Pyramid of Giza, Easter Island, many of them, like dozens of the them, the Serpent Mound in Ohio. Like an Michael is resonating right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are perfectly they, aligned we into, the globe in a perfect equator. We went into Chaco Canyon, New Mexico, near you, Richard, my, my wife and kids and I, and I got a Leica laser, and I measured the diameter of the circles, and I found a perfect... You mean like Chetro Kettle? Uh, no, Chaco Canyon. Yeah, well, Chetro Kettle is one of the kivas in Chaco Canyon. Okay, so this particular kiva was a perfect holy of holies, 20, 20 cubits, Using the Hebrew long cubit <laughs> times 20 cubits, you get 34 feet. Exactly. And oh. I measured on a Leica laser a perfect 34-foot circle diameter. I mean perfect. And I showed the park ranger. I said, this is a holy of holies using Hebrew long cubit. How the heck did they know? 
So the point is that circle resonates. You can calculate its its electromagnetic frequency, and they would put they would do this ceremony called the Lakin, where eight women would go in there, and they would be in the pitch black. They'd have a tiny sipapu hole in the floor and a hole in the ceiling. Their pupils would dilate in the dark over several days, and they would they would see beings in there. But the point is, why did they have a holy of holies right in the central site at Chaco Canyon? I measured a lot of the circles in there, and and they corresponded to Egypt everywhere in there. When I when I looked at the measurements, hey, what guys? Hold it there with the yeah. bottom of the hour. Seems appropriate to bring Karen back in because this is going on right now for real. Someone on Earth is communicating with someone off Earth the fundamentals of who we really are. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. 
for this Saturday night, Sunday morning now. It is November 28th here in the land of enchantment. We're talking interplanetary, interstellar, and potentially interdimensional communications. Communications on demand. Communications that is incredibly, deeply, anciently meaningful with constants not only relevant to the physics of hyperdimensionality, but to the constants that are found encoded in ancient sacred sites all over the world. And transmit thought energy far beyond the moon. You close your eyes, you concentrate to get out of the way. To send a message, we need to lay our contact. David, I think it's time to get into the fast radio bursts to show that it's just not you and Jimmy who are picking up these signals, but in fact, the, the, the central mystery of mainstream radio astronomers right now is amenable to decoding via these interplanetary codes that you have decoded. And that is, it should be, Hollywood sign high headlines. Why it is really it not? Should. It really should. I mean, the FRBs are fast radio bursts, are transient radio pulses of a length ranging from a fraction of a millisecond. A millisecond is a thousandth of a second. To a few milliseconds caused by some high-energy astrophysical process not yet understood. And notice what's happening on the radio phenomena with Jimmy Blanchett. It is not understood because there's no radio actual activity, radio frequency activity. So when we go to the case of the FRB that I studied, okay, so we had, this was published in Universe Today. This was Researchers working with a 500-meter fast telescope in China reported 1,652 radio bursts in 47 days coming from a single source. Now, again, in music, and Michael Lee Hill knows this, everything is about ratio in, de- in determining a harmony. 
whether something is a harmony or a disharmony. So there's 365.24 days in a year divided by the 47 radio bursts, 47 days of radio bursts equals a ratio of 1 to 7.77. How perfect is that ratio of 1 to 7.777? And when I when I when I took Peter Lemizurier, who wrote the Great Pyramid Decoded, his final measurement of an apex perfect height resolved of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, 280 cubits using 20.601 inches per royal cubit, 20.601 inches, gives you 480.69 feet times the golden ratio, 1.618033987, is equal to 777.77 feet. So that establishes that this FRB, this particular case, is the same ratio on on a scale of tens, you can move your decimal left and right in these ratios in perfect you know, harmony. This FRB series of 47 days of radio burst divided by a perfect scenario a year, 365.24 days per year, is 1 to 7.77. And that is remarkable. You, you can't call that a negative coincidence. You can call that a positive coincidence, that, that there's the universe is trying to tell us something. And and again, it, these these coincidences are are virtually staring at us, as as in the case I, I mentioned in the earlier part of the show, and 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 we just don't seem to notice. And, and I'll give you another one. When in this Navy pilot case, in the in the Nimitz case, and the 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 Princeton case of the of the UFOs, we have data from the radar operator Kevin Day again that the UFOs disappeared just north of Guadalupe Island on radar, and they detected a magnetic anomaly in the sea north of the island. And that happens to be the same north latitude as the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is 29 degrees, 58 minutes, and 45.285 seconds. Now, when, when, you can, when you look at that, why would the UFOs disappear on the same north latitude as the Great Pyramid of Egypt, why would mission control, Houston control, be almost exactly the same north latitude? And why would the space shuttle Columbia, when it was coming apart and the moment they lost radio contact, be approximately the same north latitude? When that north latitude, if you take the 29, if you take the, the, the exact north latitude of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, in degrees, minutes, and seconds, and converted to digital, 10 base, it comes to an expression of the speed of light. 299, 792, 458 is the speed of light in metric, in kilometers per second. But we're seeing the same number, and, and it's only off by 0.285 seconds. And if I – what I did is – and again, you and I had this conversation, Richard. Well, yeah, because the speed of light we know from Rupert Sheldrake and many others is not constant. NASA's own experiments at the Eros asteroid, when they put the, the little spacecraft in orbit around Eros and then eventually landed it. Well, it wasn't meant to be landed, but they kind of touched it down on Eros as an artifact. Their idea was to measure – by means of radio transmissions, the distance to Eros to compare with the optical parallax trigonometry 
that they'd measured classically, Eros was the kind of standard uh, measurement scale that scaled the entire uh, distance of all the planets in the solar system. It defined the astronomical unit. So they were using the, the, the optically defined standard to use radio to measure a changing velocity of light with their own NASA probe, and they would not admit this if someone held a gun to their head because in canonical Einstein relativity, the speed of light is supposed to be constant. In fact, it varies inversely with the hyperdimensional physics torsion field connection. See, Richard, this is one of the things that I think Avi Loeb is missing with his new Galileo project. He wants to scan the skies and find out if he can capture, you know, by eliminating all the satellites in the sky and all the, the known observables, if you have a non-observable moving through our skies. Now, again, it, it, rem, it reminds me of the, the stupidity of the press when I see <laughs> them being worried that the Chinese are going mock Five well, they're, they're look. They are trapped in their paradigm. They're not stupid. They're just yeah. ignorant. They're, yeah, they, they there is a difference because because in because the, the data from Kevin Day. Kevin Day is the radar operator. He's the one who knows everything. So you got UFOs disappearing in the same north latitude as the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is an expression mathematically at the metric speed of light. That has to and be- it also is connecting to our ancient history, which is coded in the Great Pyramid and on the Giza Plateau. Keep in mind, this is all about us. It's it's about us. It's so non-Copernican. It's all about us, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. Does that tell us who the UAPs may be? Yes, they're family. They're they're part of our ancestry. They're relatives. It's funny, Richard. You're the only show that I could – I've had this data for (laughs) for quite a few years now, and nobody in ufology – when, I, when the ancient alien show calls me, no, you can't do math on our show. And I'm like, well, I've just disappeared into math for the last five years. But the point, okay, it just gets more interesting because why did Houston Control, Mission Control, situate itself on the same north latitude, give or take a few um, seconds? I mean, degrees, minutes, and seconds. I mean, because it was the closest available place that Lyndon Johnson could put it in Texas and be meaningful. Because he was part of all this, he knew. But it's the same. No, it's the same north latitude as the Great Pyramid. Yes. And then the Space Shuttle Columbia, which again, we we should do a whole show on that because I I've got I sent you pictures from MIT. The Space Shuttle Columbia is getting taken out by a super weapon. It's not a lightning strike. It's way faster than the shovel. It course corrects at ninety degrees, and it chases the shuttle and hits it. And Cammy Jernigan, space shuttle astronaut, tried well, to Well, keep in mind, David, there yeah. are good guys out there. They're the ones trying to tell us who we are in very, very Emily Dickinson-type code. You know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant so that we figure it out. Remember, if, if we don't reach out and figure this out, if it's handed to us on a silver platter, it will not be valued. You do not value that which you do not work to achieve someone. See, that's the point. See, this is the point, Richard. For Avid Loeb, and, and we want to get him on your show, but if he understood the entry and the exit points of these UFO UAPs 
is, is very, very... Look, we have to catch Loeb's attention, and the way we do that is we let him duplicate Brewster Palmer's extraordinarily simperiment in the lab, and he will suddenly see right in front of him data which explains to him why a muamua has been accelerating over the normal Keplerian velocity leaving the sun. It's right there in the experiment. And once he sees the experiment, he'll be open to all the other possibilities if, in fact, Abby Loeb is real. If he's not another plant put on our highway here to kind of distract us from looking at the meaningful, real efforts at communication. I'm yeah, very, I'm very suspicious of everything in this quarter, given the history going back to at least 1947, if you know, a long time before that. I think you're more qualified than anybody in there. I, I think they need our impetus. I don't think they're noticing. Like I reached out to Kevin Day and gave him the coincidences of where the UAPs disappeared on radar, the same north latitudes, the Great Pyramid. Sean Cahill said, I thought that was really interesting. He wrote me back, and he sent it to... No, wait, who, who, who was Sean Cahill? Sean Cahill was an, was, a, was an officer on the USS Princeton during the case... The Princeton the was, was a, a cruiser. It was part of the Nimitz battle group that had right. was, these the encounters back in uh, 20, right. 2014. No, 2000, yeah, 2004, or was it 14? Okay, so whenever that case was, now I, I took those those videos of those of the UFOs. I took the Nimitz, and I took the East Coast case um, of Ryan Graves, Lieutenant Ryan Graves footage. I went frame by frame in the video, and I saw them do things. I mean, I, I think I know what the propulsion is. I, I think I know they're doing something that nobody could possibly imagine with their, how these things are operating. Because I'm, I'm looking at them frame by frame, and in a single frame with locked on radar tracking on the UAP, the UAP appears in two places in the same frame. And, and therefore, it, 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 it's like, a, it's like the, the, the double slit experiment where you send the, a single electron goes through both slits at the same time. The UAP does that twice in the photography, and the camera isn't moving all over the place, which which could explain an, an artifact of the camera if there was erratic, erratic camera movement, but there isn't. It's locked on camera movement. So I've done this, and I've gone frame by frame, looked at the photography. I know the real shape. The real shape is what Lieutenant Ryan Graves said. It's a cube with a sphere all in one. It's, it's a sphere and a cube. Do you know and what you just said? What? It's a cube surrounding a sphere, right? Yeah, that's what Lieutenant Ryan Graves said, and nobody asked. Okay, him. hang on, hang on. Let okay, me yeah, yeah, yeah. let me tell you where we first encounter that. Mm-hmm. This is so amazingly cool. I can't believe. In fact, it's on the Enterprise Mission website because many, many, many years ago, my friend Arthur C. Clarke and a guy named Stanley Kubrick collaborated to produce a film called. 2001, right? Mm-hmm. My favorite movie. And Arthur, at one point, wanted to make the um, the you know the the contact technology as a pyramid, and Stanley refused. He said, "Oh, pyramids are so cliche." Okay. In fact, in Ralph McQuarrie's artwork, conceptual artwork 
2004-2001, which I've also posted on the Enterprise Mission website and will add it to tonight's show in my items. In fact, there's a gorgeous painting showing the, quote, monolith that the uh, spacecraft discoverer carrying, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bowman goes into as a French giant Bowman, yeah. as a giant tetrahedron with the point pointing toward the location on Jupiter of the Great Red Spot, which, of course, is 19.5, which is the circumscribed angle of a tetrahedron in a sphere. Okay? Now, oh. a cube is two interlocked tetrahedrons. Mm-hmm. That's why the cubic city of Jerusalem in, right. in, in Revelation and the yeah. numbers yeah. 1, 1444, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. If you, if you take a circumscribed tetrahedron, which is a sphere in, you know, outside tetrahedron, so the tetrahedron is inside a sphere like a planet. The four mm-hmm. points correspond to hyperdimensional points where energy upwells. That's how you get the latitude of Hawaii, the big island, the upwelling volcano. You get the big volcanoes on Venus. You get Olympus Mons on Mars. You get the great red spot on Jupiter, et cetera, et cetera. What happens if you take and put the sphere inside the double tetrahedron? You get the circumscribed vehicle that the F-18 pilots saw whizzing right by their canopies, missing, missing them by feet, and you also get the numbers, the dimensions of Arthur C. Clarke's monolith, one by three wow. by nine. Oh, my God. See, you're way more – I mean, they should be hiring you know, us. I it will be a cold day on the sun side of uh, – David, it will be a cold day on the sun side of Mercury before they pick up the phone and call us. Because they don't Senate want everyone to know this. Yes. In fact, Sean, Sean Cahill said he, he's so – I saw an incredible interview with the guy. He, he was on the Princeton. Of course, there's the Nimitz and the Princeton. Cahill you know, goes with Elizondo to the island, to Guadalupe Island, where they see all these great white sharks that are attracted to magnetic anomalies, where the, the magnetic anomaly was north of the island, which is the same north latitude as the Great Pyramid of Egypt on the other side of the planet. And and that's where the UAPs disappeared on radar. So they were looking for it. And the locals described all these all this regular UFO activity there. But it was Ryan, Ryan Graves is on the East Coast. His 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 fighter jet got close and he could ocularly see, not on radar, the cube in the sphere structure. They're both inside of each other. Yeah. And I think he said the sphere protruded beyond the cube so so you're dead on richard like this is incredible and the same math and geometry was encoded by arthur in the monolith because he had to come up with another geometry that kubrick wouldn't throw out as too damn cliched now let me tell you what the monolith really stands for it's a hyperdimensional doorway which of course is what it was in the film but the numbers correspond to the hyperdimensional doorway of the real physics now being shown to us by the UAP phenomenon and enunciated by the head of the intelligence community, Avril Haynes, in this magic number 144 cases. Gentlemen, right, it's right, all right. there. It's all, it's all there. there. 
everything we've talked about tonight, and, and I always wonder, do they know what we know and more, or are they, <laughs> you know, light years behind us? And and, I, and, I, and the worst part is, do they think they know more than we know? Right. Because that's when they will better. not listen. But what does that tell us, Richard? It tells us that it's, is it a, you asked me this question earlier, is it a breakaway civilization? Is it, it's not the Chinese and the Russians. We know no, that because no. they can't go 216,000 miles an hour, according to the radar data. And, and the first set of radar data I got was that the UAPs dropped above 80,000 feet and radar, and that's only 15.15 miles, by the way. And the radar can see clearly past 200 miles. So they said it dropped above 80,000 feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds. And that's 66,000 miles an hour. But then plus, it's a little bit over that. So why, again, is the language around Mach 5 on the, in the news? It's, this is way past Mach 5. Because it's disinformation. Remember, remember, we're not also in a war between somebody upstairs and Earth. This is a time of disclosure. The physics is at peak. This is when the light bulb has to change. So you've got good guys and bad guys. The good guys are trying to tell us who we are, again, in this Emily Dickinson code. The bad guys are trying to keep us from understanding, so they're spreading huge lies and disinformation about everything, so no one knows who or what to trust about anything. Then you've got certain terrestrial elements that are trying to reveal incrementally more and more truths like this conference of the national cathedral which is connected to ancient human history in england which we're going to get into tomorrow night with maria and georgia and you guys come in with the numbers with modern telecommunications adjuncted by john's experience personal and michael's experience personal and Michael, by the way, I've been using your disc. I've been setting my coffee and my soft drinks, which is basically mm-hmm. cranberry juice and water on the disc, and I'm noticing changes. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Tell tell these guys what you've created in the about uh, six minutes we have till the end of the show. Because David uh, and, and Jimmy, Michael has created a physical technology that is using this physics to alter water and thereby anything or anyone who drinks the water or even exposes fluids to the field around the disc. Yeah, we're made of water, right? Actually, I know David knows this, but um, using this communication, and it was all about 432 and the importance of it, I hired uh, the scientist at Cymoscope to image my, uh, I sent them, I was meticulous to make sure I was tuned properly. And then they used their equipment to image it. And um, I already knew this art of making, they're called Pleiadian healing discs, which is quartz crystal. And then you use sacred geometry in it and it's got a copper wrap. But what I did was I used one of my cymatic images created by the scientists of my guitar and I use that in the crystal and uh, next thing I knew um, Richard had organized uh, a NASA scientist to look into my work and what they found was it was bringing through energy from another dimension that was her words not mine 
And um, one of the things it does is it restructures water in a way that they've never even seen before. And it focused the photonic light energy within a droplet of water into a laser beam of energy. And David, you might not know this, uh, just got to a point Elon Musk has taken my image in a crystal time capsule to the moon in January. So, oh, wonderful, Michael. That's fantastic. Yeah. Great technology. That's really great technology. You know, funny, yeah. it's funny, Michael. Wait, wait, Jimmy, you... Jimmy, say that louder. You're a little thing. That, that is very, very great technology, Michael. I, I watched the, uh, your interview with uh, Richard uh, uh, last week, and it's, uh, I was very fascinated, very, um, you know, uh, I found your spot on. I mean, the, what you're working on is really spot on. Um, and, and by the way, after, after your interview, I was uh, puzzled. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, that, you know, the contact with these beings from Sirius A, um, and I, I thought that there was cert- certainly a connection between Sirius A and 432. There had to be. And what came to mind immediately was that the geometrical relationship between Sirius A and the harmonic 432 is simply if you take 432 and you divide by the sum total of the angle of a triangle, which is 180 degrees, you know, the geometrically. So first mm-hmm. 432 divided by 180 gives exactly 2.4, and 2.4 is exactly the, the diameter of Sirius A. That's 2.4 million kilometers is the diameter of Sirius A. So I think there's a relationship there. Oh, wow. Mind-blowing. Yeah, I think we, we should talk offline. Uh, okay, guys, we got less than a minute. I, any, any final thoughts? Well, final thoughts. Oh, my God, there's nothing final. We exactly. got to yeah, we, we got to continue because we, we will we obviously do this again. Okay, uh, t- tomorrow night we're going to have uh, uh, Maria Wheatley and Georgia Lambert. We're going to talk about the connection between the event at the National Cathedral, which I don't think was an accident. I think they picked that very deliberately because we're talking about not just ancient history, but ancient history of consciousness, ancient history of human technological achievement ancient history of what's happened to us, why are we in a virtual prison, and who is trying to show us the way out. I want to thank my guests this morning, David Sarita, Jimmy Blanchett, uh, John Womack, and Michael Hall. They will all be back again in one form or another in ensuing weeks. Remember, we're coming up to a major uh, data point on the Christmas Eve of 2021, December 24th, when the geometry says something should happen. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking up. 